Welcome to a very special episode of the B-Side podcast for the film stage. This um, is a subject and an episode that's been a long time coming. Uh, As you probably noticed, we took a little bit of a break, about a month break, you know, late summer break, as it were. We ran some polls while we were taking the break, thanks to lovely Connor and our, and our, our good pal Jordan Raup over at the film stage. And you guys voted... For the subject today, it was our first poll, the one and only Nicolas Cage, born Nicolas Coppola of the Coppola family. We'll get into it. Um, And we brought someone who texted us two years ago about wanting to do Nick Cage. Uh, He's been here before. He's our good friend. You know him. You love him. Corey Everett, the creator of Cinephile Card Game and the one who created and runs with, with Connor and all of us. The Cinephile Game Nights, which uh, you hopefully have been watching, we're, we're deep in season two. Corey, what do you have to say for yourself? How are you? Uh, I'm excited to be here. As uh, Dan mentioned, yeah, this is a long time coming. Um, and I did, we did, we found the text, which is how I know it was two years ago that I texted and said, Oh, right. Yes. I forgot. We, I forgot. A Nicholas Cage B side, and in particular, wanting to discuss this uh, specific run of films. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and we'll and we'll 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 line them out. Uh, well, actually, Connor, why don't you? I think Connor, just for we'll start with Red Rock West because it's a little bit of a those movies almost came out. Yeah, within, yeah. I was gonna say there's but, a, the the but if you the chronology here is slightly murky, but basically the the period that we are gonna sort of generally talk about is sort of just after he kind of lands on the scene with uh with moonstruck right i mean he had done raising arizona he had done peggy sue got married but but by moonstruck you know in 87 he's here he's you know people are aware of him they like him and uh and then there's sort of a string between 87 and uh, it's like 80 it's like 88 to 94 right yeah but basically the bookends were you know it's basically moonstruck to uh leaving Las Vegas. So yeah. we're not going to talk about every movie in there, but it is full of some doozies. I'll run through them quickly um, and I'll highlight the ones we're going to talk about. But so you have 88, which is Vampire's Kiss, which we decided is not a B-side because it's just sort of no. well known in a in a culty fashion. It is fun fact. Uh, he calls it his favorite performance that he's ever given, um, yeah. which you can kind of get if, if you've seen Vampire's Kiss. Uh, then it's followed in 89 with uh, Never on Tuesday and a film called Time to Kill, not to be confused with A Time to Kill. Uh, yeah, Never on Tuesday is just a cameo, I believe. Yeah. yeah. But. And then uh, 90 is Wild at Heart and a Top Gun ripoff that fr- is for sure a B-side, D-side, C-side, whatever, uh, called Which Fly- I Which I watched. Did so you? We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, I yeah. did. Well, I'll talk we'll, about it. We'll talk I re- about it for a second. But yeah. but yeah, then there's uh, Firebirds in 90. Uh, then Zandali, and then uh, Honeymoon in Vegas, and Amos and Andrew. Uh, and then we're going to get to the first of our B-sides, which is a film in 1993 called Red Rock West. 
which was also followed in 93 by our second B-side, Deadfall, uh, which is directed by Christopher Coppola, I believe. His brother. Yeah. His brother. Um, then we, uh, we're going to follow that up immediate with the immediately following Guarding Tess, which was 94. Uh, he then does It Could Happen to You, Trapped in Paradise, A Century of Cinema, which I think is just a doc. And then uh, we're going to finish off with the last movie he made before winning his Oscar in uh, 96 for uh, League of England, Las Vegas, which was 95. He made a movie called Kiss of Death, which is a remake of a Henry Hathaway picture. Um, yeah. Richard Widermark's first movie and only Oscar nomination. Yeah, and he ba- and Cage basically plays a ver. We'll get to it, but Cage basically well, plays yeah, some he, version like, they, of the Widmark character. It's like a combination of like three of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. So it's a great period for this podcast, right? I mean, like yeah. we talk about the the you know Keanu Reeves in the immediate his his five films between the Matrix and the Matrix Reloaded is the inspiration for this entire podcast, right? So. This and I, of course, I feel like this is kind of what we talked about two years ago. This is a similar, if not even more interesting period, right? Where it's like he's a movie star, barely, and these are a string of basically non existent movies. I would argue it could happen to you and Honeymoon in Vegas are the only two A sides because they were modest hits. They are remembered. They're basically light comedies. They're likable movies. Um, Honeymoon in Vegas is like one of my mom's favorite movies, actually. Um, so um, anyway, but the other six are not uh, are not quite the same. I wanted to quickly, before we dive fully into Nick Cage, just complain about <laughs> the state of cinema. Because <laughs> as we speak, this movie Reminiscence is out in its theaters and on HBO Max, directed, written and directed by Lisa Joy, who co-created Westworld. And it's a, I think, very, I think it's a good, very serviceable, interesting, Connor, I know you also watched it, um, near future noir, starring Hugh Jackman. Uh, Tandiwe Newton and Rebecca Ferguson. And it's just a good, solid movie with certainly some things you could criticize. But it was mauled by critics. Nobody saw it in theaters. It's on HBO, HBO Max. I, I, so I, I don't saw, know what I saw it in theaters. You saw it in theaters. <laughs> I, I, I did I did I did watch it on HBO Max, I will say. But um yeah, it's one of these things where to me, and, and even to a lesser degree, there's this movie, The Protege, that's out, which is a, kind of a straightforward action picture, but directed by Martin Campbell, starring Maggie Q, Sam Jackson, and Michael Keaton. Also has not, is not really performing particularly well. And it just bums me out because, and I did see that one in the, in the theater, we'll say. Um, these are exactly the movies that I find many people complain that they... Now they only come out on Netflix. It looks very flat because it's on Netflix, which I do agree with. All these things, right? It's like, oh, they, they become programmers on streaming. They never even open in movie theaters. What, da, 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 da. Or they're starring then, like Frank Grillo or something. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, and, yeah, like yeah. and then, it, and then in, this, in the same breath, it's like, why don't they make these? Why don't they make these? And then a movie like Reminiscence come out, comes out. And to me, this is the whole thing that really makes me sad is I, I, I would love for... Black Widow has a very healthy aggregate critical score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a terrible judge 
of these things, but it is an easy reference point. Okay. And I just would love somebody to explain to me how <laughs> the same person who's watching Black Widow and all, all, all of what that's offering you is watching Reminiscence and saying, oh, no, I mean, it's more visually interesting. The ideas are more ambitious. The performances are more nuanced. But you know what? It really trips on a couple of these minor things. So we're going to just give that a negative review. But this other movie that's just like, basically a okay spy thriller that's wrapped into this episodic like larger than life thing we'll give that one a pass i just to to me these are where i get confused Corey, Corey, Kyle, we don't spend a lot of time on this but feel free to jump in and tell me tell me i'm crazy I tell me i'm not crazy I, go ahead Corey. yeah or go connor sorry yeah go I'll, I'll just take only because i've uh, Corey. you have you seen it yet or no um, no, I, I haven't seen. But, but I'll say it's not even. You don't even need to have seen the this reminiscence. I, it's more just. I mean, I've been saying this for ten years. Like State of Play came out, the Kevin McDonald movie, a million years ago, and I was saying this where it's like, right, that movie got heavy criticism, and I, I rewatched the movie, and I'm like, that was the death knell a decade ago. If you're right. criticizing a movie like that that has these good scenes of dialogue and it's a journalism movie, if that's getting I mean, I I'll admit I am saying we should give these movies a little bit of a pass. I am yeah. I am admitting I think, that we should do that. Yeah, that's what I, I think yeah. that's the I think that's where the crux of it is, right? Is because yeah, I think the reason and I'm not saying it's okay, but I think the reason a movie like a Black Widow or maybe even fucking you know next week a, a Shang Chi or whatever, right, is that when these movies that uh, maybe not everybody but certainly people critically uh, in the, the just the film writing world, when these movies are basically pretty okay, you know, these being like Marvel movies, big big studio movies like that, part of the the you know conglomerate, right? When they're basically pretty okay, we're like, yeah, whatever. It's like basically this compared to the other stuff, this one's basically fine, right, and relatively harmless, right? So that's why they get a pass. Whereas a reminiscence has a little bit more to prove, I think, with those people. And I, think, I guess I, I just I think, think yeah. I think that's why you and I don't I don't know if this is going to happen just because the same people aren't behind the wheel. But it's I think it's the same thing that you literally see, like, as of this weekend, you know, on fucking film Twitter with Tenet. Right. Like because it's having that 70 millimeter run, uh, not just in New York, but I think in a couple places. But, you know, so, so it reinvigorates this thing of people being like, oh, yeah, you know, we kind of maybe were mean to it, you know? And I don't know if that's going to happen with Reminiscence because it wasn't directed by Christopher Nolan, right? No, I think, no, but, this is what I'm saying. You know, I, I think it 100% will. This is what so? I'm talking about. I, I mean, look, yes. you know. Maybe, no, but this is I my point. So, we should be grading I, I like these it. movies. Yeah. I mean, Corey, what do you think about this? I, we should be, my point is, I'm admitting, we should be grading these movies on a curve. Like, we should be going into Cause, Reminiscence cause they're, cause they're the Because it's the underdog. Yeah, because yeah. they don't make yeah. them. I don't understand. It's so weird. It's like, it's like you're, you. I agree with you, Connor. I feel like we're harsher on those movies when we should be less harsh. I'm saying that. I'm yeah. admitting a bias. Like, what do you think, Corey? Go ahead. Well, I, I will say, you know, having not seen either of these movies and, and completely falling into the camp that you're complaining about here, I, I will say that there's kind of, you know, with the protege and with reminiscence, there's definitely like, you know, one kind of obvious problem that I think both these movies have. And that's that neither of them star Nicolas Cage. 
You know what? That's a great point, actually. It's a great That's segue. A great that, is, that is a, a great, great point. Segue. No, but yeah, but look, the point is simply, it bums me out. I think like a year from now, the tenant thing is a good point. A year from now, you're going to see people be like, you know, the movie was actually kind of good. Reminiscence, yeah. you know, and I and when that happens, I'm going to roll my eyes because, you know, the receipts are what matter with these things. Anyway, Nicolas Cage, that, that it is what we're here to talk about. Now, I was trying to think before we started recording what my first Nicolas Cage experience was as a young man. I was going to ask, for both of you, I, I don't really know what, you know, not only your first, but what what's your relationship to Nicolas well, Cage? Always, I mean, so my, yeah, so my mom always really liked, I think my mom loved leaving Las Vegas, like just as like, Sure. A performance. Like I remember her just being like, wow, this is, you know, I, I didn't see it. You know, my mom let me watch a lot of stuff, but like, that's not that. I mean, like, leaving Las Vegas is, and even I'll t- I, I tweeted this. I rewatched it for this. It's hard to watch. Like yeah, I was, I, I, I did, I, I, I did, I, as, I did. It as took well. me days yeah. to finish that. Cause I just was yeah. like, you forget the, all the it's, Elizabeth Shoe stuff. Oh my it's god! An it's, un- it's just I, you know we don't but, need to harp on it, but I will say just because it's the thing that we're going to culminate to, right? Um, it is. That's yeah, a and truly I, amazing. I mentioned this to you on Twitter, Dan, but like it, it's a for me. I and I don't even think this is hyperbole. I think this is a pretty. You can make a pretty good argument for this, but it is a top five Oscar winning performance, like of all the Oscars ever, right? Like. Well, if, I, mean, if wow, I think right. I think if you were to rank, I think I think leaving Las Vegas, Nick, you Cage, would have to watch every performance ever nominated. Win, no, 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 winning, winning, like of all the ones. That, okay, or of all you the, have you have to watch every winning performance? I, I have not. I'm just saying of the ones that I've seen, it's there. So I'd be, it'd be no, curious no, I, I would, I would, I would softly agree. I mean, yeah, it's an amazing, it's, it's a truly transcendent performance. It's one um, of those ones that you, I think, you look at and we and we forget about. Cause we're kind of like, Oh yeah. Leaving Las Vegas. Like it's a, and I don't know me rewatching yeah. it. It's a tough movie to watch, but when you just watch him do the thing that he does, it's such a perfect culmination of yeah. all the reasons he's a great movie star. And yeah, yeah. It's uh, and even even million. I mean, Mike Vegas, they shot a yeah. 60 millimeter. It looks yeah. great. The, anyway. Um, Elizabeth Shue got nominated is amazing in it. Um, but anyway, I think bring it back though. I I mean, this is probably cliche, but for my money, like I deeply loved the rock as a kid, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply, deep, like loved the rock. Like the rock is five stars on my letterbox. It's in my favorite movie list. I love that movie. I love it to this day. Um, and I think that has to be the one in terms of, you know, Stanley Goodspeed. That's what I, when I, Nicholas, Nicholas Cage, that's what I thought of. Stanley Goodspeed. So that's, I mean, it's a boring answer, but if I'm being honest, I think that's the answer. What about you, uh, Corey? What about you? Yeah, um, I, the first one I probably ever saw, like crazily enough, I think it was Raising Arizona, which I th- yeah, I, I, say, I have a yeah. vivid memory of my parents. My, my parents were a big fan of this movie and they sat me and my brother and sister, who are both significantly younger down. They were like, we're going to watch this movie that we liked, you know, that's, you know, five or 10 years old at that point. Um, and we all watched Raising Arizona. And it was just like, you know, I was maybe 12 or 13 and my siblings were under 10. And I, I just remember kind of like I didn't get it at all. Like the humor didn't land. I didn't understand what I was watching. I had no reference point for it. 
And yet, you know, maybe two years later, I think like Fargo came out and I got into that on VHS and I discovered Barton Fink and became obsessed and, you know, saw Big Lebowski opening weekend. And so it was like, it was like right before I got obsessed with the Coen. So I don't think I really had a reference for Cage when I saw Raising Arizona, but that probably was the first time I saw him. And then The Rock was probably the first time I saw him in the theater, which I remember that movie kind of coming at a time. I remember seeing the trailer and kind of feeling like, like not interested, like whatever that is, Sean Connery, this other guy, like I'm not interested because yeah, that Connery's was 96. Old, whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, and I, you yeah. know, I was 14 or 15 years old and thinking like, I'm an Arnold Schwarzenegger, Syl- Sylvester Stallone, Kurt Russell, Bruce Willis, like give me those action guys. The yeah, rock, you weren't, you weren't, you weren't down with like the new guard yet of, of action. I didn't cinema. know. I didn't yeah. know it was the new guard. Yeah. And yet I think my neighbor, my neighbor either had seen it or was going to see it. And I went and thought, okay, I'll go give it a shot. So in the theater and loved it and just was totally blown away. And what I didn't know at the time was the new guard was coming in and the new guard yeah. wasn't just, you know, action stars like Nicolas Cage and Will Smith and, you know, people like that, but it was directors like Michael Bay. I can't remember if I had seen Bad Boys or not, but it was definitely, um, yeah, and John Woo, you know, in 97 and all that stuff. So I think um, I was in- incredibly into The Rock at the time as well. Um, and then it was maybe... Um, Probably early college. The friend of mine I went to college with and I both became obsessed with Nicolas Cage in the early 2000s, where we started kind of going through his back catalog of movies we'd never seen and in some cases never heard of and renting them. And it was during that period that we discovered Vampire's Kiss. Mm-hmm. And it just became this like cult object of fascination for us. And keep it, this was 20 years ago. And I think at that point, like, you know, Spike Jones had mentioned it when he was making adaptation as like a thing that he was obsessed with. And so maybe it was around then that we had watched it and we're just like, holy shit, what is this thing? What is he doing? What is this movie? And I think from there on, we were just like kind of hungry to discover like other movies that he had made and given these kinds of like gonzo outside of the norms of what acting could be performances and we kind of stayed with that for a long time and i feel like what happened in the decade or so after that was that became a much bigger thing as his career you know kind of took an ebb everybody kind of became in on the joke you know for whatever it was worth but i think the reason i reached out to you guys two years ago wanting to do this was it was right around the time i think mandy had come out and um um Oh, God. Color Out of Space was about to come out. And that had kind of pretty good buzz. And I remember basically wanting to do a B-side to sort of defend Cage and and sort of look at like, yes, I know like he's in these crazy VOD movies and sometimes he's giving these like wild over the top performances. But the thing I kind of wanted to dig into was like, but let's not forget, like he's also this incredible actor who has given amazing performances. And I feel like as he's become, you know, like more meme than human being, that is something that tends to get lost. Now, mm. what's happened in the last two years since I initially texted you and now is <laughs> he's made a couple of movies and gotten some of that acclaim and reappraisal. And now with Pig coming out and him getting these raves, it's kind of like, I think everyone's sort of caught up to that thesis, which is that, oh, yeah, he can well, also be great. Yeah, you know, when he gets nice, the material. Yeah, I think that's the other nice thing about pig though is even compared to like some of the other more notable hits that have happened for him recently even if even at least cultural hits whatever is that like 
Pig is different than like Mandy and Color Out of Space in that it is a like deeply like it has it. it oh yeah, it's it about better, grief and it better it's a resembles a leaving Las Vegas and, than it does. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, and I think that's why it's kind of sparked that I think in people's uh, yeah, and and shows brains. that shows that he still has that gear. You know, yeah, he's yeah, still yeah. capable. You know, yeah. if he gets the material and the and the filmmaker, um, and so yeah, and so that's kind of why I initially wanted to do this yeah and like you know connor what was your first as mine i, I think this? i think mine's kind of the same as yours dan i mean i don't think the rock was my first but it definitely was that like it's I, I, like i don't have a distinct memory of him because he never frankly really mattered that much to me like just when i was young and whatever he was just kind of a guy who like was a movie star and I kind of didn't feel one way about him or another. And then I think I started to gain a little bit more of an appreciation for him probably when I was about like 15 or 16 and like getting into movies and actually watching like, you know, Raising Arizona and like watching the ones that maybe my older siblings would be like, oh, you know, he was he can like be a good actor sometimes. Right. Is like kind of I feel like the especially in the 90s, the way that that stuff would get tr- treated. Um. And I think so. I think my first experience was probably either the Rock Con Air face off, like some combination of yeah, like the that. Great American Nicolas Cage action trilogy. action trilogy, right? And so they they all kind of bled together in in as one thing or one experience uh, for me. And and yeah, and I was gonna say, and that and that trilogy you're talking about. I mean, for people who may not have been a little bit. I mean, as old as I was or older at that time is the like Nicolas Cage was the most unconventional action star that you could have imagined. Like I said, you know, summer of 96, I was looking forward to a racer starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, like that was my speed. And so like Cage, this kind of, you know, art house weirdo, you know, was the last guy you expected to see in The Rock. And, you know, The Rock is kind of meeting you halfway and he's playing a character that is, is a little per- bit of a science is, nerd. Yeah, he's perfect you for know, that role because he's kind of a dope. But he's quirky like, and yeah. he's kind of a nerd, but, you know, uh, he's also, you know, ripped and all these things. And then it was the next year with Con Air and Face Off where he was just fully like, no, 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 like this is what I do now. And, you know, gone in 60 seconds after that and all that. And I, but I think him him kind of owning like I'm going to be an action star, you know, for real, I think was just like it, as surprising as at the time kind of Will Smith, the skinny, you know, hilarious Fresh Prince of Bel-Air being an action star in Independence Day and then um, Men in Black and Enemy of the State and all that. And I think that was that was definitely part of that sea change um, is that is that Nicolas Cage was the least likely actor, you know, when he even when he won his Oscar, you know, in Leaving Las Vegas, a culmination of kind of, you know, acting roles and weirdo roles and stuff that he would kind of be this mainstream action star is and it seems unthinkable. What's interesting, though, is it seems like he is kind of as evidenced by all those movies we listed that, you know, in that period that we're about to dive into, like he's kind of grooming himself a little bit, right? Like maybe not specifically to be an action star, but he's grooming himself to be a movie star, right? Like he's, he's definitely like making the moves, you know, in terms of like the things that he's choosing and, but he's still, I think adhering to that, like weirdo boundary pushing mantra uh, for the most part, 
uh, while while doing so. And I think like even when you get into his star years, right, like the reason and I mean, I don't know, maybe people feel differently, but I feel like the reason something like the rock and face off kind of hold a little bit more water than Con Air or Gone in 60 Seconds or frankly, even National Treasure, even though those movies are kind of fun, like is that he's allowed really, to- really fun. No, no, I'm just saying. Kind of he's, fun, bro. I'm just you saying, watched them, dude? Those I'm movies just, are great. All, anyway. all I'm saying is in Con Air and like the National Treasure movies and Gone in 60 Seconds, he's like muted, right? Like he's he's kind of boxed in in a way that he's not really allowed to like use those kind of like German expressionism references that he wants to use. And like he's not allowed to kind of cage out, I think, in a way that obviously later becomes a meme and a joke, but when he's allowed to do it in certain kind of controlled sequences, it's that's where he obviously shines as a performer, right? Like the, yes, I I lost my, I lost my bride, right? Like it's like this insane thing that you're like, Oh, this guy's magic. Like, you know, Uh, absolutely. I, I rewatched, um, I rewatched the rock and moonstruck this week, even though I know that's not, we're talking about, but because as you mentioned, they're sort of the bookends to this period in terms of, I, I wanted to see, you know, my, my thesis for this B-side in kind of a reductive way was that, you know, Nicolas Cage, you know, pre-87, which I'm saying is sort of his breakout year, you know, with Moonstruck and Raising Arizona, those were like the twin pillars of like, he has arrived, you know, here's, you know, completely different performances um, and, and kind of showcasing the range of what he could be as an actor. Um, and then on the other side of that, you know, seven years of all those varied performances that you're talking about, and then he wins the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas and then immediately becomes for the next 10 years, I would say kind of a top 10, top 15 movie star, you know, in all kinds of movies, not just action movies, but kind of in everything, you know, in the middle of the road, you know, the family man or, you know, national treasure or what, what have you, but kind of, you know, matchstick men, you know, dramas, action movies, you know, romance, like everything he does. He is about a decade when he is firmly on the A-list. And so I, I wanted to, you know, dive in a little deeper in this period in between Nicolas Cage is the next big thing. And then seven years and, you know, almost a dozen movies pass. And then it kind of finally happens. The aftershock, the anointment, the Oscar, the movie star career, you know, kind of happens after that. And I think that everything he's doing in this zone is so interesting because he, you know, back in, you know, the nineties and, and certainly before, you know, you were allowed to try a lot of different types of things and the types of movies here, you know, the kind of comedies where he's being paired up with Shirley MacLaine, you know, uh, the he's, you know, in a buddy comedy ish with Samuel L. Jackson, Amos and Andrew. He's, you know, um, in kind of noir updates. He's in, you know, all these different kinds of roles and doing lots of different types of performances some of them are good and some of them are not good but it's like he sort of had this time to you know experiment and figure a lot of different stuff out that i think you see carried through you know certainly the next 10 years of his career you know if not you know even through yeah. today i would say um the only thing i would disagree with in terms of or connor what you said earlier i i I don't think he was ever, I mean, I watched a lot of interviews with him uh, in preparing for this and like just, you know, looked at his career. I don't know that he was ever angling the way that we're saying, because so just, just to get us to Red Rock West, right? He, so he was early in his career, 
he was a hunk, right? I mean, that's something that kind of gets forgotten. He had a little teen heartthrob phase. So he's in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's a small role. He's, you know, buddies with Judge Reinhold. Then he's in Valley Girl and Rumblefish. Rumblefish is directed by his uncle, Francis Ford Coppola. A relatively small role in Rumblefish. But Valley Girl, he is randy yeah the um, lead the, the, and, the and it's, male lead it's an update of romeo and juliet and i watched that movie for the literally for the first time for this podcast and he's he's sexy in the movie that's the whole point i mean he's like a very kind of a bad downtown la kid right and he's in racing with the moon the next year the richard benjamin movie which i watched for this with his buddy sean penn he's sean penn's like bad boy best friend right who's who's kind of a little hot gets a girl pregnant whatnot the cotton club also his uncle's movie he's like a little bit of a psycho if i'm remembering he's kind of a he's kind of a fuck up in that movie yeah yeah, he's like he's like a little psychotic little like asshole um and then in 84 still in 84 he's in um alan parker's birdie which is a great movie and he is the best friend of Matthew Modine and they're both vets of Vietnam, I believe. And they're both suffering. And the whole idea is Nick Cage is suffering physically from wounds and Modine is suffering psychologically to the point where he was a kid who was fascinated with birds before he went to war and as part of his PTSD is he thinks he's a bird. That's the whole thing. Matthew Modine and they're in a psych ward and Nicolas Cage is trying to convince them, trying to like get him out of it. Right. So these are already like very diverse roles. Right. But like, he's definitely in the pocket of kind of as like a bit of a heartthrob, you know, what have you. Trying to transition probably out of both like, you know, the Coppola shadow and being, being a teen actor into being, you know, a serious as Sean Penn was doing at the same time of, I'm a serious actor. I'm a grown up. You know, I'm, you know, I'm method. I'm all these things. And then, and then the boy in blue is a movie that barely came out. He's a crew. It's a crew. He's a row. It's a rowing sports movie. But the big movie before raising Eric Zoda, I would say is Peggy Sue got married. His last, his last movie with Francis Coppola. Um, he makes a very specific decision to do this very annoying voice, which is a and great, a, which is a, a great decision in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. sure. I, I don't think everybody agrees with you. I think. <laughs> I mean, the movie did well. Uh, it's an early Jim Carrey performance. Kathleen Turner's Peggy Sue, right? So it's a good movie, but it's a very specific. The studio almost fired him. Francis Ford Coppola had to fight to keep him on. I don't think Francis Ford Coppola even like though the voice like right. Coppola himself. I don't think loves that movie, right? Like. Um, but it was a very specific decision and I think is the inflection point of like, no, I'm going to do this stuff I want to do if you'll let me do it. And that never changed. And I would even argue, you know, he's made, I did the math, he's made 97 movies, okay? 40 of them in the last 10 years, right? And that's that's a lot of them were VOD, streaming, actioners, what yeah, have those, you. Yeah, those, those are the IRS years. Those are like- But even in the, but here's the thing though, even in those movies, he is doing things. He's trying different things, right? And, and, and for every, you know, and every few years you get a Joe and a Mandy and uh, The Trust with Elijah Wood is an underrated movie. And, uh, you know, The Runner is an underrated movie. Right? Frozen, you get, like, Frozen like, Ground and, is kind of good, too. Be, yeah. Well, pig, and, pig, Pig is, I would argue, better than all those. But, like, The Frozen Ground is actually a really interesting uh, serial killer thriller where he's chasing John Cusack, and it's good. It's, like, a good, like, scary, creepy thriller. And it's, like... Con Air Reunion. All, and, yeah, yeah. And in all those movies... 
he's doing stuff and he talks earnestly about those roles and whether or not he's putting it on or whatever. I, I, I respect that about him. Like we, we talk about this a lot on this podcast. Extroverted performances are so rare these days, right? And nobody's Peter Laurie, nobody's Marlena Dietrich, no, nobody's James Cagney. He's the only one. He's the only one who is. And when he talks about German expressionism and these things, that's what he's talking about. Like he is theatrical first, and like going through these movies. And to your point, Corey, about this like weird semi nadir period we're going to talk about, starting with Red Rock West. It's almost like he's trying to figure it out a little bit. Um, I think the point you're making is a salient one because I do think that is something generally I, I think people, at least maybe in the last few years, do give him credit for is that like he never phones it in. Right. Even if no. it's not successful, exactly. even if it doesn't land. And like we'll talk I you know, a couple of the movies we're going to talk about have that in them. Right. Where like. You know, he's he's always present. He's always there. And I think that's true. Obviously, what you're saying, Dan, in terms of like him navigating things in a way of like, well, let me do what I want to do. And if that gels with what you want to do, then great. We're going to we'll get along fine or whatever. Right. I just think that he he did. He does seem to be someone who and I can appreciate this, who is also very acutely aware of like success and awards and things like that. Right. Like I think, um, I do, yeah. th I do think like, you know, like for instance, if you watch that GQ thing, right. The, where Love the goes, GQ yeah, thing, it's a yeah. great, it's a great thing. And listener, if you don't know these things, you should, you should check them out there. It's a great series that, well, yeah, I'll link to it. It's, yeah. it's the GQ an actor talks about his they're career. Yeah. They're most famous. Without a doubt. The most interesting one is the Nicholas Cage one. Cause oh, it's yeah, so yeah. And honest. He's, he's very and honest it, yeah. and it's cool. And it actually weirdly, I think of all of them, as opposed to just being a cute little jokey interviewee thing, he gives like some good insight into like his roles totally. and things and that you're like, oh, wow, that like he's able to kind of cram in there. And one of the things I did take away as a cumulative thing is that he does seem, you know, it, those things, the, the maybe more superficial things that people say they don't care about, he seems to transparently care about. And I guess that's what I mean from a place of he kind of, I think, ultimately wound up grooming himself for like, OK, well, I want to be a big fucking action star and I want to, you know, I want to work with fucking Spike Jones and I want to do adaptation because that's, you know, because not only does it seem like a fruitful creative thing, but I think, for instance, not winning an Oscar for adaptation probably kind of fucked with him a little bit. Right. Yeah. Well, he and he talk, he kind and, of and alludes he, to that. Yeah. And he talks where he, he talks makes the joke where he goes like Meryl, Meryl, got Meryl and Chris got their Oscars. Yeah. There. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's and you could see that it you know maybe it doesn't haunt him or whatever, but like it's clearly nobody cares. He yeah. cares. And I, well, right. he basically he alludes to the fact in that thing that he thinks adaptation is the hardest thing he's ever done, and yeah. and that, and that he didn't win for that seemed right. Like mm. we're leaving Las Vegas. He talks honestly, and I think he's right. That movie cost $4 million. Nobody gave a shit about it. Like, I think everybody was like, just went to Las Vegas and made a movie for no money. I mean, sure. all of Mike Figgis' movies are like that, right? And it's like, yeah. they and it happened to make $50 million and win them an Oscar. Like, nobody yeah, yeah. thought that was going to happen, you know? So, no, and I, and I think, uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, point being, I think that is something he cares about. I think when he hits the peak of his career, it's something he's obviously very, uh, you know, he's very conscious of. 
That said, well, and, and Scott Rosenberg has a story on the set of what was it, Con Air? Oh, the writer yeah, of Con we, Air. Yeah, I talks, think we've referenced this before. Yeah, they're he, in the trailer, yeah. and Nicolas Cage looks at Scott Rosenberg and is like, "Why am I? Why am I not Tom Cruise?" Right. I mean, so yeah, he obviously and it, cares. And when it's you just think, like when you think about, and yeah. you know, who knows? That obviously, anecdotally, who knows how true that exact statement is, or whatever. yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. But it is kind of hard not to think it's at least a little true when you look at his movie choices over the course of his career and he's chasing tom cruise well not like more but yeah you know but 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 i'm saying for a few when years you look at the yeah. years of success it's like he do, he you know he works with de palma right after mission impossible right like he like mm-hmm. uh, you know he does he does firebirds which is his top gun and it's like infinitely not as good right like so there are just these little things that pop up that you know he, he ultimately works with oliver stone like and granted I'm also talking about a list of directors that anybody who wants to be a movie star for a certain amount of decades puts on their list to work with, right? Like yeah. Scorsese and and what have you. But can I make the case that Family Man is his Jerry Maguire? Is that an that argument? Sure, it is. Sure. Very yeah. Jerry Maguire. Like, uh, yeah, Corey loves Family Man. Everybody. And uh-huh. he's great in that movie. You know, I, can I say, Corey, we talked about this. I did, me and Kelly rewatched Family Man somewhat recently. And I, it's better than I remembered. I certainly walked away from it like, oh yeah, you know. That, well, it was directed by nobody, so that is amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not directed but, by But hang on, um, let's, let's But my segue quickly, into that was. Go ahead, Corey. You get to uh, Raising Arizona, Moonstruck, and then you get the wild swing of Vampire's Kiss, right? And you go through all these other movies, and he's working with all these different people. And I think what lands him in the early 90s on something like Red Rock West is I think he's and I don't I'm not this is I'm not quoting him or paraphrasing him. This is just my sort of observation of it. But it seems like he uses it as a way to rely on some of the things from early in his career, like his handsomeness, his hunkiness, which I think John Dahl definitely takes advantage of in the opening moments. You know, there's a very you know, there is an ogling. He, he does one armed push ups. No, no, right. But <laughs> in that, the opening. It, there is Who a, hasn't on the side? Yeah, yeah, we've there, all done it. Yeah. There's a very intentional, I think, ogling of Nicolas Cage in this movie. And I think both with Dahl and Cage knowing exactly, you know, what the what the score is. Right. And I think it's an interesting the way I feel about this movie, I think, is slightly complicated only because I do think it is a little bit of the antithesis of what I was talking about before in that he does not really get to, you know, it's not an extroverted performance, right? Um, No, it it is not in the Nicolas Cage losing his shit compilation. No, exactly, right? And I think just to dive into the general plot of the movie really quick. So Red Rock West, we're, we're here, people. We're here now. It's great. We did it. This is <laughs> the first it. movie. We made it. Yeah. Uh, Red Rock West comes out June, uh, June 93 overseas and then comes out 94 in the spring. Right. And it's directed by John Dahl. Um, we, I believe, talked about we mentioned it briefly on a previous episode. I think our Steve Zahn episode because we talk about Joyride a little bit, which was also directed by uh, Dahl. And. You know, I think we've just mentioned it in the sense of it's a really fucking good neo-noir, right? Like mm-hmm. it's uh, and it's this very, very simple uh, sort of deceptively, slightly complicated, but deceptively simple story of this guy, Michael Williams, who's Nicolas Cage, who is this drifter who drives out west to a town called Red Rock 
to essentially try and get a job um, working on an oil rig, I believe, right? Something like that. But he's a veteran. He's an army veteran and he's got a bum leg. And so he's a liability and they won't hire him. But he's already out there. So he's kind of shit out of luck, doesn't know what to do. And he wanders into a bar where um, JT Walsh is the bartender, right? And he essentially, you know, JT Walsh is like, oh, he essentially, it's a mistaken identity thing. JT Walsh thinks he's somebody else. He's like, oh, you're supposed to be here last week, but I have that job for you. And Nicolas Cage, without thinking, is just like, yeah, I'm the guy, right? Very quickly, it kind of spirals out of control where you realize JT Walsh wants to pay Nicolas Cage or the person he thinks Nicolas Cage is to murder his wife, who's Lara Flynn Boyle. And Cage very kind of quickly realizes he's in and over his head, but thinks he might be able to get out of it. And so he goes to Lara Flynn Boyle to seemingly do the deed, but instead tells her about it as well and takes money from her to kill JT Walsh. After that, he essentially decides to skip town with both of their money, but not before he writes a letter to the sheriff explaining the whole situation and he's about to bounce. And on his way out of town, he hits an anonymous man with his car who turns out to be alive, but ultimately dies because they find out at the hospital that the man had already been shot twice, and it seems like Cage might have done it. So now he's in hot water, and not only that, but he realizes that the sheriff is, in fact, J.T. Walsh. And, th- and this is just the first act, mind yeah, this you. Is and the, this, this, is is like, the, this is all in the no, first but this 30 is, minutes. What, what's this funny, is the setup. What's yeah. funny about this is this is more the the pacing and the tone of this movie is closer to the original kiss of death yeah than the remake kiss of death which is which is our which is one of our movies we're talking about so that's kind of an interesting thing to think about and in hindsight we probably shouldn't have picked two noirs out of all these movies but because i would have showed three are basically noirs What's the what? Which one? Deadfall. Two other ones. Deadfall, Deadfall. Uh, which also yeah, totally well, is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, yeah. but that's a performance decision. But anyway, yeah. but anyway, because of death is so different, it almost doesn't matter. But that's exactly right. And then the one thing you're missing is he also runs into the real hit right. That's who is that's basically the next Hopper. step. So yeah. as he tries, he so J T Walsh kind of runs him off the road, literally, to uh, try and kill him. He gets away and he's rescued by Dennis by Hopper, the hitman who you yeah. very quickly realize is the hitman who's arriving like a week and a half later. And we, yeah, we, yeah. And, and then the rest is the movie. So, so yeah, you're right. This is the most down the middle of the performances that we're going to talk about. But I think just back to what I was saying, what's cool about it, I think is that you feel like this dude is like boiling the whole movie, right? Like there's a, at least to me, there's like a let he's playing it cool and he's playing it tired, which I think obviously Nicolas Cage is very good at both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there is a uh, there's still a weird element of danger to him that you're like waiting for that to like surface. Yeah, yeah. And then I mean, he's, he's yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's subdued for the most part. Like, there's a trace of his, like, raising Arizona accent in here. Mm-hmm. But there's a few mm-hmm. flourishes. Like, I feel like he deploys, like, a fuck Mexico at top volume. There's, like, there's right. a few yeah, moments yeah. where, like, the the kind of, you know, louder Cage persona uh, comes out. And um, I had never seen this movie before. I vividly oh. remember the VHS cover at the video store in the sure. 90s mm-hmm. of, of, I had no idea what it was, but I just remember seeing it. And... Um, I don't know about you guys, but this was easily my favorite of the four. And I thought the, the sure. best, yeah, I would the best I would movie of the four for sure. Yes. And I was sort yeah. of almost giddy during the first act at how um, how much it was playing with noir um, conventions and setup and doing smart reversals on that. Like in mm-hmm. a way, it felt a little bit almost like Shane Blackish in terms of like, John Dahl had probably seen a thousand, you know, classic noirs Mm -hmm. and was making this movie for people, assuming they think they know where this is going and he's going to kind of steer a different way. And I thought the first like 30 minutes or so was paced in such a way to every time you think, oh, well, they're going to do this. It would kind of, you know, zag instead of zigging. And there's like a shot where you know, the bartender leaves the register open and cages there and he's a drifter who's down on his luck and you're thinking he's going to grab money out and he doesn't. And there's like, I think there's like a dozen little choices like that where you think, you think you know where it's going and it kind of doesn't end up going that way. And by the time you're, you know, 30 minutes in and Dennis Hopper shows up, you know, just a few shades removed from Frank Booth, you're just like, oh, I fucking love this movie. Yeah, this is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Like, I can't wait to see the next hour of this unravel. And um, the other thing it seemed to me is just that it was very, um, very David Lynch light. You know, it's funny. He had just worked with Lynch on Wild at Heart because you've got Lara Flynn Boyle from Twin Peaks. You've got Cage from Wild at Heart. You've got Dennis Hopper, Hopper from Blue Velvet. And you've got this kind of mix of this kind of 90s sensibility with these sort of, you know, noir and classic tropes and, you know, kind of a somewhat guitar inflected score and things that felt very, um, you know, if you were a genius and you were David Lynch, you know, you would maybe be pushing things even further. But if you were a little, you know, more down the center, you would be doing something like this. But I I still really appreciated it. And we should say John Dahl, you know, so he made basically three of these movies in a row and they all kind of went underseen at the time and are now all regarded pretty well i think he did kill me again kill me again with val kilmer and joanna whaley uh he did this movie red rock west and then he did the last seduction which obviously people remember the most because it has that incredible lead performance from linda fiorentino that didn't get nominated for an oscar because it was released on hbo before it got released in theaters and a similar thing happened with red rock west it kind of got dumped by the studio and rebought by another studio and kill me again barely got released and then unfortunately his fourth movie unforgettable with Ray Liotta was like an $18 million budgeted disaster. So it's like his career has been weirdly punctuated by like modest hits like Joyride, modest hits like Rounders, which now you'd call a bigger hit now, but at the time it wasn't. And then like huge misses like Unforgettable and then uh, The Great Raid, which was his World War II movie, which was like just an absolute like lost tens of millions of dollars for the studio. So he's an interesting director. And this is certainly, yeah, everything you said, Corey, it's totally right. It's Lynch light. It, the pacing is very quick. It's, it's got that beautiful thing. I, you know, I saw this movie a long time ago and my memory of it was, it was kind of essential for me as I was trying to learn how to write in it, it kind of, 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's just funny you say that because I my introduction to this movie was in college in a screenwriting class. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. this is a great... Yeah, and, and it, that makes sense because you would teach... I would teach this movie to introduce maybe noir, but also as as a, as an example of you can do whatever you want. That's the beauty of writing. Like, like Red Rock Quest is a great example of like, there's a guy, he goes into a town. They think he's a hitman. And then you can just do whatever you want. And then it's like, oh, he's not. But then the real hitman comes in and then it's a shootout. And then it's like, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a great piece of writing. It's a great, because like every, it and it's, it's like a perfect balance of being, tropey enough that you're like well i like noir and i like what this is doing right and it subverts those things often enough to keep you on your toes which is obviously great but i think the big thing going back to what Corey mentioned is that it seems like john Dahl and rick Dahl, who i'm assuming is his brother i'm not entirely i think sure so about that, i think so but yeah. the it's two pr- of them- it's pronounced rick dalton actually he <laughs> added the suffix i like it um the yeah, I you can just see them almost pausing at each sort of tropey moment they're doing and going, what's the most interesting thing that could happen here? Right. And they make like all the right moves in that regard. And it's it's like what keeps the movie kind of feeling fresh and cool. And, and ahead of and ahead of the audience, you know, who yeah, thinks, yeah, ex- you know, exactly. I, I've seen this movie. And and when the movie yeah. started and he's doing one handed push ups and I thought you know, oh, oh boy, you know, we're really in for it. This is going to be a movie that, you know, kind of doesn't have the self-awareness. And I, w- I think the thing that made me so giddy in the first act is just thinking, oh, no, this movie is smarter than me. This movie isn't yeah. just going to do all the tropes. This movie knows all the tropes and it's going to take an interesting spin on them and it's going to take you for a ride. And it's self-aware in a very reverent like not smug not shitty way it's not like making fun of the movie you think it's going to be or anything like that it's just self-aware enough to know what the expectations are right and um yeah i don't know this movie this it's a good fucking movie it's like i just i was excited when we finally when cage won the poll this is the thing i was the most excited about because i was like oh we finally get to talk about red rock west but yeah, and it's a great, you know, look, setting is so important with these things and it's funny I'm working on a thing as we speak uh and rewatching this was so helpful because I was like yeah, like this is location, you just pick Red Rock, right, in Wyoming and you can just create a world, right? And you can kind of build these characters and that's the thing. It's like Lara Flynn Boyle is a great you know, alt femme fatale and JT Walsh is, you know, you know, JT Walsh, who, you know, a similar type of movie four years later is called breakdown different performance by JT Walsh, but it's a similar type of kind of rush noir, right? Where you're like, it starts and by 30 minutes in, you're like, Oh my God, we're here. I can't believe we're here. Like, but it makes total sense. Right. Yeah. That's what, I mean, rewatching it today. That's exactly what I thought. And I don't think we, Red Rock. I don't think we specify, but yeah, like this movie's only 98 minutes long, like in, yeah, yeah. including credits. But there's right? like a like, shootout 30 yeah. minutes where 30 minutes in and you're like, Oh my God, I like a minute ago, he was 
trying to get five dollars for gas you yeah. know and now he's in a shootout it totally makes sense it's kind of like out of the past would be something i would yeah comp sure. this to, which sure. is an incredible noir from the 40s which i would recommend everybody watch and you know and it also brings it back to these performances you know your richard wade marks what have you back in the day they were like acting with a capital a and i think it's funny how he's how cage is mostly subdued in this movie but to your point Corey, in the moments where he pops it really does harken back to those older noirs and i think the whole thing feels like kind of a beautiful homage but also an update that totally works so it's great there's yeah, yeah. There's there is a moment that is in the Nicolas Cage freaking out video. I think he punches the ceiling, which I think did make that super cut. Which oh, I'm, I'm okay. sure I'm sure that's scrubbing through it now. <laughs> yeah, anybody, any no, it was it was in my notes actually. Yeah. I, I recognized it when it came up. I thought, oh, I know this scene. Um, anyone who has not seen that uh, super cut from a decade or ago or so, it's called Nicolas Cage losing his shit uh, on YouTube, and it was. Um, one of the uh, seminal uh, internet supercuts uh, from from back in the day that kind of collected some of his most oh, yeah, here it is. outrageous yeah. moments and uh, is definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it. Scored to uh, uh, Requiem, uh, for a dream. Requiem for a Dream yeah. score, which is yeah. incredible. Um, one of the other things I was thinking about this movie is that um, in addition to kind of the Lynch, you know, influence of that, you know, kind of just on the cusp of 1990, early 90s thing. Um, there is also a scene in this with two characters hiding in a closet, peering out at uh, the woman's significant other outside, as in Blue Velvet. Um, but really this, you know, coming in 94, uh, which was the same year as Pulp Fiction, and really thinking that this kind of neo-noir, you know, uh, with a touch of the David Lynch, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, you know, late 80s, early 90s, was before sort of, Quentin Tarantino had really arrived and then every smart, you know, noir influenced criminal, you know, indie movie would be influenced by Tarantino and much less a kind of David Lynch or traditional noir in this way. And so it it felt, you know, innocent in that way in the in 95, everything would feel more like a Tarantino movie. And yet this coming, you know, post Reservoir Dogs, obviously, but, you know, probably made before or at the same time as Pulp Fiction, which was when it really exploded. Um, there's there's no trace of a Tarantino uh, strain of self-referential or yeah. film nerdism. No, I think that I I'm glad you said that, because I was going to say, I think the film nerdism part is the is the key component, right? Where like the version of this movie and maybe not by John Dahl or whatever, but like if this movie gets made by somebody else, you know, uh, two or three years later, they're cracking jokes about like double indemnity, right? Like they're like, you know, the, the subtext becomes text where like what's fun about this movie is you just have to have seen those things to like really appreciate the things that it's subverting. It doesn't need to tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. and, and shout out to if if uh, anyone listening has not read our friend Brian Raftery wrote a great piece for The Ringer a few months ago about kind of the neo-noir, I yeah. think mostly in the 90s. And I believe this movie is part of that as, as well as The Last Seduction, the the John Dahl movie he made after this, which is on Criterion right now. And so um, definitely link to that in the notes if you haven't, because I think it's the, a good primer for this yeah, movie. Yeah, I definitely will. I will I'm say the, the bummer. Yeah, Unpunished Evil when neo-noirs took over the 90s. Yes. The, uh, at it right now. the bummer about this movie, listener, unfortunately, is it is not easy to come by, um, which 
made a lot more sense to me when Criterion released that neo noir collection, which is a great collection if you haven't checked it out, listener. But on, I, on the I, channel, yeah, yeah, on Criterion channel, and I was like, I feel like Red Rock West should be in here because it is like, I mean, to me, it's like a perfect neo noir. It's like it's it's like the epitome almost. Um, and, uh, and it's not on there and I don't know, I was trying to find out, uh, what happened and I can only imagine it has something to do with just the disappearance of both of the companies that made it, you know what I mean? Like it just, well, Columbia, yeah, Columbia. Yeah. It it was Columbia TriStar, um, bought it for home video, right? which now is sony so right i mean it's disappearance and capacity. then yeah. and then the foreign rights got sold to a subsidiary of polygram and polygram is yeah. obviously no longer around so i would bet a movie like this that's kind of what i was alluding to earlier it kind of got bought and sold because there was no faith in it and it yeah. didn't make really any money in the theater and it, you know that happened like i said it happened to doll you know it would kill me again as well and you know so i think there just might be messy in terms of like who has the right to stream it? You know what I mean? Sure. Um, yeah, it's entirely possible. I, I think but, it was nominated at the Indie Spirits. Unless I'm wrong, that, I thought I be. remember seeing that. I think it. I think that year it was up for Best Feature, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, um, it made it made Gene Siskel's Year End List. It made, it made Peter Travers' uh, Best of Year End List. So it like, got a little bit of, you know, it got a little bit of love, but, you know, kind of came in one at the time. But yeah, certainly worth checking out. Um, yeah. The next movie, I'll I'll intro this because it's kind of a nightmare. Um, <laughs> Deadfall, which is funny because there's another movie called Deadfall, which barely came out with Charlie Hunnam and Eric Bana, I believe, yeah. and uh, Olivia Wilde more recently. But this Deadfall is directed by Chris Coppola, who is Nick Cage's brother. And the star of the movie is Michael Bean. Um, it was supposed to be Val Kilmer. At one point. That is interesting. Yeah, it was that actually supposed to be, speaking of Kill Me Again, it was supposed to be, I think, a movie for Val Kilmer and Joanne Whaley. Uh, and uh, it, it was not that. It did not become that. <laughs> yeah, they made they made Willow and then and Kill Me Again within a year. And then I think that was, and then they were married. But obviously, you know, watch the Doc Val to find more about that. Um, fun fact, the co-writer of this movie, I don't know if you guys saw this. Mm-hmm. Did you go, see Yes, this? go on, go on. Everyone's okay. favorite Oscar winner, by the way. The, yeah, yeah, the co-writer, Corey Everett, of this movie, Deadfall, directed by Christopher Coppola, who also co-wrote the script. He was in the movie. Well... Valalonga's in the movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Nick Nick Valalonga, Oscar winning Sorry, screenwriter yeah, Oscar of yeah. Green Book. So he's also <laughs> in the movie. And so anyway, this movie, it's it's yeah, it is, I suppose you would call it a pretty straightforward noir con movie. Basically, what happens is Michael Bean's a con man. He does cons with his father, James Coburn, and their group of friends. Um one of them is Peter Fonda, who's in like two scenes. A con goes bad in the beginning when we realize Michael's bean thought his gun had blanks, but it was replaced with real shells. And in the confidence game of the deal goes bad and you have to shoot the guy, he shoots his father thinking it's blanks, but it turns out to be real and he really kills his father, right? That's how the movie starts. And he gets away from the cops. He runs to LA. His father whispers something in his ear right as he's dying. And basically, Bean realizes his father had a twin brother who lives in L.A. who took the cake 
from his father. So he has to go to LA to get take the cake from this uncle he didn't yeah, know. Yeah, Dan's had, doing who, air quotes now. Air who quotes looks, so yeah, who looks the cake. exactly? <laughs> who looks? Yes, thank you. Who looks exactly like who's who played by James Coburn? The twin twin brothers, classic. Yeah. Which I will say is kind of a classic noir thing. So sure, okay. no, 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 yeah, it all, it's all yeah, very, it's fine, it's fine. So he goes to L.A. He becomes involved with um, uh, a man named. Uh, Eddie, what's his last name? Eddie something. I gotta find out what it is because he rep- Nicholas Cage plays a gangster named Eddie. He re- he he reprises the role. Eddie King, thank you. He reprises the role. I was saying thank you to my brain. Um, in a movie called Arsenal that came out like five years ago that you can now watch on Amazon Prime, which is crazy. Chris Coppola is in Arsenal, which is crazy. Oh, that's but anyway, he meets Eddie King. Eddie King works with the twin brother James Coburn. Uh. Eddie King, Nicolas Cage is dating this woman. Sarah Trigger is the actress's name. It's not the kid. It's not the character's name. Her name is Sarah Trigger. Yeah. Her name and is basically, Diane. Basically, yeah. Basically, the rest of the movie is just Bean gets him close with his uncle. It pisses Nicolas Cage's character off, and that leads to just problems. Meanwhile, Bean needs to get to the bottom of how how his father actually died. That's the movie. Now. That doesn't matter in the grand scheme of cinema because the movie, unfortunately, is not amazingly well made. It's it doesn't look good. Mm. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of wooden performances. Um, it's not particularly well directed. I thought in particular there's like a scene. I was thinking about this while I was watching it. There's a scene where Nick Cage or, or Michael Bean rather and Sarah Trigger are in a bed, and the they cut, and it's a side profile shot in the bed. And the lamp is blocking his face. And I thought to myself, well, that, that's just bad directing because <laughs> you just can't do that. Yeah. Because your movie star, you see, there's a lamp in front of his face and that you should move the lamp probably. But anyway, yeah, sorry. I was going to say the only reason the, the Nick Cage performance in this movie is so unbelievably <laughs> crazy. Yes. I yes. would argue, you know, people point to Vampire's Kiss. I would say this rivals that in terms of like sheer audaciousness. I would say yes. his, yeah. Anyway, Corey, yes. I'm gonna, I, go ahead for a little bit about this performance. If you yes. Can. So I completely agree. And I, I it jogged my memory, which is the other thing that happened two years ago when I first texted you guys to say, hey, we should do a Nick Cage B-side was that two years ago was the first time I watched Deadfall. And Deadfall, I had known about for a long time. I had not watched it. I had not. This, the... is, this was my first okay. time. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, I made sure it was on this list. And so two years ago, I, I had been saving it, literally, because because in the Nicolas Cage losing his shit video, which yeah. was, you know, iconic as far as I was concerned, what was, was you know, besides the Vampire's Cast moments, which I knew extremely well, it was looking up, you know, what were these other scenes that were so insane and they were from this movie Deadfall. And so for a long, long time, I had kind of saved Deadfall as this holy grail of I'm going to watch everything else and I'm going to save this. And someday I'm just going to dig into, you know, see the entire thing. And so two years ago, I finally did. And that's when I texted you guys say, we got to do it at KHB side. Um, and, and yet, you know, having to revisit it only two years later was definitely the most painful of these four, just in terms of, in terms of the movie itself. I mean, the cage performance, you know, he's only in it for about 
40 minutes of the movie. Um, but the movie itself is extremely painful, you know, for all the reasons we're about to get into. It, you know, thing that I looked up about it was that uh, what you need to know about the movie was the budget was $10 million and it grossed $18,000. And so that's kind of the zone that we're in here. And And the other thing is just that it has kind of an amazing cast, like a great cast. You know, Michael Bean, Talia Shire, Mickey Dolan's from the Monkees, James Coburn, Peter Fonda, Charlie Char- Sheen, Charlie Nicholas Sheen, Cage. Actually, you know. Charlie Sheen, who for, for like three minutes yeah. is actually very yeah. good. I, no, no I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say the only two things out of this movie that I was like, oh, Talia Shire, also very good as the bartender. Yeah. I, no, but I do think the Charlie Sheen scene is, is pretty good. Is the only scene in the whole movie that I was like, Bean oh, this... V, Bean V Sheen. Yeah, Bean V, the Bean Sheen, the Bean <laughs> Sheen scene. Uh, <laughs> no, that was the only scene in the movie that Can I was Can I ask like, a question, like, Connor? Like you this. would know this. What mm-hmm. is the game of pool they're playing? Well, they're just, did... play, they're just playing standard billiards, like for points. So they're not playing. Oh, see, I yeah. didn't even understand. Yeah. I'm, okay, I'm not, yeah. to your point, I am not entirely privy to the exact rules. Uh, yeah. But no, they just play like standard billiards. And which, we should say, you know, which Talia is like no numbers, no solid stripes. It's just the Talia Shire is balls. also part of the Coppola family. And so yes. is the aunt of Chris and Nick. Yeah, it just um, seems, I mean, and fun fact. Did you guys, I didn't, I'm an idiot. Talia Shire, the reason her name is Shire, she was married to David Shire, who's yes. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who did one of the greatest scores ever yeah. in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Directed by her brother, Fans yeah. for Copa Crazy. Yeah. And um, they founded the Shire where all the hobbits live. Everybody of course. Well, I knew that. Corey, knew I knew that. that. Yeah. Well, Corey, yeah. everybody. Um, God. No, I think, yeah, the, the Charlie Sheen scene is the one scene in the movie that I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And like, I, it, everybody in it seems to be doing it. I, I think it's just because Sheen is just like, Super cool and collected. He gives a nice little whatever subdued performance for like the two seconds he's on screen. He's kind of a cool character, at least intriguing character. Yeah. yeah. You you um, get the I mean, you you get the sense that truly to assemble this cast, you know, most of whom, you know, except for the three or four leads, I would say, are basically in one or two scenes. Yeah. You you get the sense that, it's, you know, because he was a Coppola, perhaps he called in a few favors. Yeah, no, 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 you know, a hundred a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Um I think it is. I was also staggered, actually, by how much Coburn is in the movie. Like, like, because he, you know, because he plays the twin brothers, he gets killed in the beginning. And I was like, oh, that was Coburn. Like that. You know what I mean? Like, I was like that. that He's not. That was them using the favor. And then he like actually shows up and like has a supporting role. I was like, oh, shit. okay. Um, I will say because I think it's going to be really easy to dog on this movie and we should because it sucks. But, <laughs> but yeah, not good. Uh, I will say it is a smart use of using your favors and your cast to at least cobble together some sense of production value, right? Uh, uh, but it, see, I don't know. It's if I hard because it's it's poorly shot, and I agree with you in that. Like, uh, yeah. it looks like shit, and well, it's but, but so it also, stagey. The whole yeah. thing feels but, like but it was also, shot on a soundstage. Well, and that's the thing. And it's also it's not like Chris. It's not like Chris Coppola like had. I mean, he's made other movies, sure, but it's not like it. And it's not like it sparked him into becoming. No, no, no. I I agree. I'm just saying. I think it's. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm less speaking to his Like there are lenses, there are lenses I could recommend that, <laughs> sure. that would have probably been a better investment yes. than Talia Shire. I love Talia no, no, Shire, no, no, but, but I, I guess mean, it's my, my point is it, I think this movie is a really good 
uh, a really good indicator or example or case study in the value of a face and the value of like sure um uh, you know ch- charisma right and i think i mean you know and just to get into the cage portion like it's i wasn't bored I'll say that. Like we've done, no, no, no. we've covered. No. We've he's covered the best part. He's the best part of. He's the best part of the right. movie. I agree I mean, without a doubt. And I, and I, I mean, think. I think. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I just we've certainly covered well, movies we, well, on this podcast let's, that are let's, far worse than this because they don't have something well, like the Cage performance to just. Well, let's just. What does he life. do? What is he doing in this movie? The, the answer like is whatever. The hell he yes. was. No, like his, exactly. his, his, his brother let him go. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. And that's great. But like, actually, I was, while I was watching, I was trying to think like, what is he actually like? Because here's the thing. He, like I said, he reprised the role in a movie that came out 25 years later. Which I'm confused that, at that, how that is logistically possible. I mean, it's just like, I watched, standpoint. I watched a bit of it. It's just, I mean, he's just I, doing it again. Yeah. It's not, there's no really explanation. But my point is simply, I would have to imagine he has some sort of love for the character if someone's like, hey, do you want to do this again? And, you know, Chris, like I mentioned before, Chris Coppola is in Arsenal. So, like, there is some sort of like, oh, yeah, let's do this. Right. Like, and so my point is, obviously, Nick Cage, as he's wont to do, and he's very honest about it, he obviously has some sort of affinity for what he's doing. And I'm just trying to think of like what exactly is that? Because it's such a crazy. Can I give a he's stretch? like a melting face. Well, no, no. no anyway. I was gonna say, can I give a give a stretch in terms of like I'll probably give this movie a little more credit than it deserves by like analyzing it. One thing that struck me about Eddie King as a character that I kind of liked because I truly don't know if I've ever seen it done in a film noir or another character like. He's playing a version of like the mad dog character, right? Which exists or oh, whatever. Yes. And, and it's yeah. a trope. But he's playing it like, what if the mad dog didn't know it was a mad dog? And I mean, and like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, and like just wasn't aware of its place in the world, right? And not to jump ahead, but like Richard Widmark in Kiss in the original Kiss of Death is like a mad dog and is aware of it so much as to be like, I am a mad dog. Don't fuck with me. Right. Whereas like cage is just a mad dog who actually can't control himself and like, doesn't understand why he, you know what I mean? It's like, he's just this like, right. And not in like a, not in a self-serious, stupid, like Christopher Nolan jokery type way or whatever. It's, it's nothing like that. It's just like, he just literally is this like, dopey mutt who like can't stop biting people and like <laughs> isn't aware yeah. of his nature which i think is kind of fascinating uh well it's a it's a contrast which i think the nick cage and kiss of death character is a mad dog again but one who is aware that right. that is his role whereas yeah. in this one i think yeah. it's more you know visually it's cage as tony clifton you know <laughs> i think getting the rope right, from his brother you. directing i'm so happy just being, i was trying yeah, to grab my i was like who the fuck does he like, look like yeah, how tony do i put clifton, my finger on this yeah and i think it's just you know it's a bad wig it's a bad mustache it's a bad the nose, accent the nose. it's a prosthetic it's, nose it's veneers yeah. it's like he's revealed to be bald it's like when you get enough rope you know from his brother to basically like his brother told him like you can 
look however yeah, you want. Do whatever you want to yeah. do. Yeah. It's like Nick Cage is just like putting a hat on a hat. He's like doesn't yeah. know where to stop. It's like everyone needs an editor. And I think like Nick Cage, who I do think is a truly great actor, I think this is, you know, legitimately an awful performance. And yet, and yet, I think it's also hilarious. It's gonzo. It's yeah. if Nick Cage were not in this movie. I think it would still be a terrible movie, but Nick Cage doing what Nick Cage is doing is the thing that makes it a memorable bad movie. You know, the reason it's kind of notorious 25 years later is because of what he's doing. And that's the thing where you're going, Nick Cage from movie to movie is going out on such a limb that when he's good, he's fucking great. And when he's bad, He's still I don't good. think, you know, and, and <laughs> you like could correct good. you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm truly struggling to think of a movie that would have been great or good if not for Nick Cage's performance that doesn't work. It's like even when Nick Cage is bad, the movie would not have worked regardless. And Nick Cage sure, is at the very fair. least making it interesting. I, and yeah, so I was I think that sums up his last 10 years of kind of VOD roles of like none of these movies are gonna be classics. But at least Nick Cage is kind of giving his all and he's doing something that makes it memorable, you know, and I think that's the thing about this. I think there are movies of his in his filmography where that is not the case, but I will say I think they're fewer and further between, but. I do because like, for instance, like a what, you know, a um, like Sorcerer's Apprentice comes to mind, right? Like. That's like well, a, but what you're saying, he makes what he makes it worse. With a different actor, I, though. No, no, no. All I'm all I'm saying is, I I think you're right about that. Like when he's bad in a movie, and the movie is bad, it's the movie was also bad, right? So I don't think that is a movie that necessarily would have been salvaged if you swapped him for like Johnny Depp or some shit, right? Me, right. Like it, that, but that's all. Really. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which I think is correct. I but I do think it. To kind of further your point, when those two things happen in that weird little, you know, like algorithm of good cage, bad cage, bad movie, good cage, whatever, when both are bad and and, and cage like isn't showing up, like when that happens, that's I do think when you get the true tragedy, because you're just like, oh, like this is useless because like you're not even doing anything. Right. And I think I think obviously has those spots in his career, maybe more now than than uh than he used to but i do think like a movie like this to your point it's i think makes it worth the price of admission like i if someone was like oh i can only rent deadfall should i rent it i'd be like yes because like oh i i mean yeah i I mean i think it's worth the price of admission if you are listening to this episode literally at this point and you have not seen, I mean, I, I swear the the highest possible recommendation, you know, I already said, I think Red Rock West is the best movie we're going to talk about. But if you only watch one of these four movies, you should watch Deadfall. You know, like <laughs> this is bad in a way that is so unusual and unique. And his performance is so sure. out there. If you have the slightest interest you know, in Cage as an actor, you know, or even just, you know, kind of debacles like The Room, you know, movies that just like, how did this go as wrong as it goes? I think like, you know, A Vampire's Kiss, Deadfall is your Cage double feature, you know, and I think that's just what happens when like everyone needs an editor and and his brother just didn't say no. So all of his 
Cage's craziest, you know, ideas were indulged. And the results are just like unfiltered, uncut, you know, yeah. Nicolas Cage. For, I agree. For better and worse. I agree with you, Dan, in that I don't, if I had to, I, I don't actually know if I could point to a crazier Nick Cage performance. Like, I mean, maybe you could argue, uh, obviously there's Vampire's Kiss and like maybe you could argue Bad Lieutenant, but like at least Bad Lieutenant feels a little bit more in line with like the spirit of that movie. Yeah, I mean, we look, we can't speak. I mean, we haven't, none of us have seen all of the VOD movies, so who knows? But in terms of just the lingering kind of performances that define his career, yeah, yeah, it would be hard to, you'd be hard pressed to find a more out there performance than his performance in Deadfall. And, um, and, here, yeah. and here's the other thing about it. Okay, N- number one is that it, you know, released in 1993 and watching it, it feels much more like, 1983 in terms of how modern like how stagey how kind of like you know it's just cliches abound it really doesn't work in a modern day setting like that like michael bean who i love in aliens and terminator and tombstone is really not he's like he's he's drowning he's not good here either the vo is terrible i wrote down the coast was alive but i had no time for the sights it's just like (laughs) Jesus, pulling your hair out stuff. And, you know, for whatever kind of um, like production value you get out of this cast, you know, whether it was favorites or not, it's like sort of goes away with the kind of orchestral synthesizer score, which just makes it feel so much cheaper than, you know, whatever it must have cost. Um, And it just the, the craziest thing about this is, you know, if you watch a Nick Cage VOD movie from the last 10 years or so, it's like. Okay, well, he's just off doing his own thing, and that's that's one thing. But the thing about Deadfall is this was two years before he won the Oscar for Best Actor. Okay, this was not yeah. 10, 15, 20 years before after. This was right yeah. before he got the highest honor in the industry for achievement in acting. And, and it and just like, shows him des- and well deserved. Yeah, you know, yeah. too. Yeah. You know, like to your point. And I he's mean, just, like a, all the way fucking out there, you know, there's a certain point you just start shouting all of his dialogue. Hi, fucking. Yeah. Screaming fuck at the top of his there, lungs. I mean, I there's mean a, there are moments where dialogue doesn't even factor into it, where he literally just starts like speaking in vowels, right? Where he's just like, blah, 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 like, and you're just like, I don't know what's happening, but it's certainly something. His death, I will say, truly haunting death. Yeah, do do you uh, yeah, what I mean whatever, but do you I, get the sense I, I was I was disturbed you, by his by, that, yeah, by his death. Do you get the sense that Nick Valonga um is a bad he writer? folds his pizza? I mean, <laughs> that he, he certainly folds, folds his... that he folds his pizza in their entirety. Um no. I mean, look, I always look, I defend I always feel like I defend writers cuz I always think it's important to remember like you know, you write drafts of things and then they get made and so much of the time you're not involved and it was one thing it becomes another thing what have you i mean they certainly made a draft here they certainly made maybe the one draft (laughs) right certainly val longa like when you consider this co-writing credit and the rest of his career the green book win is one of the i mean it's a hollywood dream ending thing i mean you could not imagine a guy like him with the pedigree and whatever winning an oscar i mean you know whether or not 
it was deserved is obviously something that um you know so but um that's that's something to be to be uh, to be discussed <laughs> but uh, so moving moving on this is i think maybe the it, oh, it's going to sound funny saying this but in a way it's the strangest of the four because yes. it's the most pedestrian so so guarding tess is our third movie and it comes out just the year after right the the two movies that we were just talking about right so 94 um it is directed by the one and only we all remember where we were hugh wilson who (laughs) hugh wilson american filmmaker did police academy right first wives club kind of just a kind of a plug and play kind of a guy and 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 the, the long and short of this synopsis is cage plays a secret service officer named doug chesnick and he has been tasked with guarding the former first lady played by Shirley McLean, for the last few years about the, the length of the first presidential term of like th- this current president who wins reelection. And he thinks he's done guarding Tess, who is this kind of hard to deal with. Cantankerous for, old woman, former yes. first lady. Right. Yeah, that's a perfect word. So, Suffice it to say, he's not done. She requests that he stays. He's pissed about it. I I hate this woman. It's such a terrible detail. All this stuff. Um, and she's a handful. Let me tell you, Tess is a handful. And then they grow a begrudging. They have a begrudging respect for each other. That comes from him kind of being a little bit more brazen with her. Um, and that's the movie. And then the third act takes just a left turn that I couldn't even, I mean, we'll spoil it. I suppose. Yeah, we'll, we'll spoil so, it. Cause it is just, it's, it's wild in a sense of, uh, all I'll say is I, so I had never seen this movie. I was aware of it. I remember it like being, yeah, I don't know TV. that I had either being honest. Um, yeah, it was always on, it was always on TNT. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember it being on TV. And, yeah, sorry, it's, go ahead. it's bonkers because it seems like this, you know, for most of the running time, like it is this kind of gentle, high concept it's, adult yeah. comedy, like a middle of the road, like what would be right in the bullseye of Mechacore Entertainment. Oh, and, and, yet, I, and, I, and let me and I like the movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I walked <laughs> okay, away fully, yeah, fully okay. Mechacore. Like, yeah. like, like you could picture. I mean, I, I didn't watch the trailer amazingly, but I can picture the trailer. Like, guarding test right like yeah. just like just very much like you know Screw all he wanted did, 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 all he wanted did, did. was another yeah all he wanted was another assignment all she wanted was him for another four years you know it's just like you <laughs> and can you're feel already it. in the theater with your popcorn six like, months before yeah, the movie comes like, out walking on and sunshine look, kicks in and and look mclean right this is mclean obviously after terms of endearment, which is eighty two, right? So it's a long ways away. But she three, I think. Oh, is it eighty three? Eighty three. I think. I think so. she she's doing this version of a character for decades, right? Yeah. Like this kind of like, you know, smarter than you think, meaner than you want her to be, like snap a doodle do. But still character. not like. But you still maybe love you know, her a little. Like postcards like, from the edge. Yes, this yeah. movie, right? Like you know, yeah. I believe she does a version of it, and rumor has it, for God bless, you know, rumor in the two steel magnolias uh, in her shoes, for God's sake. Sure, um, which is a great movie. Um, but anyway, so I'll just so Nick Cage. Very subdued in this, but funny, right? Has a couple lines. They have, I think, great 
Helen Mirren Vin Diesel chemistry. Like <laughs> a like, very specific thing. Like a very kind of May December, you know, no sexual stuff at all, but like just a very like like a begrudging respect, mm-hmm. a wink and a nod. Very old Hollywood, I'll say. Like, yeah, it's like a, it's like a uh, very William Holden. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Gloria from Swanson. Sunset, Gloria yeah. Swanson. That's what like I was gonna very, say. Just, it's like a better ver or a, a a brighter version of Sunset Boulevard. Is like, yeah, like, and yeah. it's and it's it's appreciated. And I think you get like a great little Austin Pendleton performance, right? You get like these little kind of supporting turns, um, and yeah, and it's every- very. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Every scene, every scene is kind of a battle of the wills between Cage and yes. McLean, and it's yeah. sort of fun to see him. You know, well, this younger actor going up against her, this legend. Like a and highlight. Kind of, yeah. yeah, and like a highlight of this shit, right? A highlight, of course, is they go to the grocery store, and she's a pill, and all the security servicemen are there. And they do a price check over the walkies. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, I no. mean, that's it's, just that's just trailer, fucking. It's so be. that's fucking nineteen ninety four down the middle. Yeah. fucking. It's breeze, breezy. Breezy is shit. the word. It's it's like a breezy little movie, and then yeah. about I, yeah, so le- legit the the halfway yes. mark. No, it's. A, I think it's like the last. So is, basically, is it like a third act thing. Yeah, I think uh, it's the last thirty minutes. Basically. There's this whole running bit where Austin Pendleton's the driver and he's kind of more willing to listen to Tess because he's not Secret Service, what have you. Yeah, like he's Ir- sort of a made man because he was her yeah, driver. Tess hired her, yeah, whatever. Separately. So so, so early on in the movie, Tess and him, they drive away and they go on a joyride and the Secret Service is like, you know, shit out of luck. Freaking and have out. to call the local police, and it's a whole thing. And you get the impression it's happened before, based on the reaction of the local cops and whatever. And, and then, just please, please keep in mind that the first hour of this movie is like this gentle comedy, like in the mold of like a driving Miss Daisy of like yes, this cantankerous yeah. old woman and a younger man. Well, I'm sure in her that's employee. how the movie got. I'm sure that's how the movie got <laughs> oh, greenlit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, and then, yeah. and then yeah. the last act just takes this tonal left turn. Well, so. Yeah, so what happens is it happens again, right? At this point, Nick Cage and Shirley couldn't be on better terms, right? They've learned to love each other, basically. There's there's a friendship there. And he takes her alone with Austin Pendleton out to, like, a lake. And while he's, like, grounding up the chair, the car drives away with Austin Pendleton and Shirley McLean. Turns out it's a kidnapping. Okay, and what Nick Cage thinks is another joyride is a straight up Shirley McLean's missing. You got to call the president. <laughs> Shit yes. just got real, and and, and within turned- five <laughs> within five minutes, it's they they're demanding millions of dollars. We're gonna kill her. Everybody's like spitting at Nicolas Cage, like you, you're a fucking disgrace of a secret. You know they're just like now you go and how do you go to sleep? Yeah, James, and you pee, you piece of James, shit. James and, and, Redborn comes yeah, James in. Redborn he's like comes up. Yep. He's like not since Sean Penn hired me to fake out Michael Douglas <laughs> in the game three years from now have I been. And it's this whole thing. And, and 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 this is after they've had like Shirley MacLaine and Nicolas Cage have had these like late night at the bar like coming together it you is. know like you know we really Life do respect one, each other and, one thing we skipped know. over which truly this is the truly baffling thing to me is early-ish in the movie it's established that Tess 
is is gonna die because she has right she has an, a heart she had, thing. Yeah. no 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 she has an brain. inoperable brain tumor sorry right? brain yeah. and it's 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 uh it's at first hinted slash revealed i suppose early on where after cage is ordered to come back at the behest of the president right after he's already been released so pretty early on in the movie she basically mentions like yeah i forget what the first thing is but she goes like something 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 and then she says i have an inoperable brain tumor and there's an opera on friday night which one of those things is true right and cage assumes it's the opera and they go to the opera and whatever turns out it was the brain tumor thing right like she was like using that as a sort of like uh, defense mechanism way of like opening herself up without actually like telling giving any information and slowly but surely uh it comes well out. and obviously the joke being wouldn't he love if it was the brain tumor yes he of, hates course, so of course of course of yeah. course so but it's weird because they so the moment that this movie takes the turn and she gets kidnapped it's her bringing him out to a private picnic and she makes a point of like i don't want anybody else there i just want it to be you and you know if you were to bet dollars to donuts you'd say like oh she's gonna like pass out here or whatever and this is where the movie's gonna like take its turn where the last fucking act is gonna take place in a hospital or whatever and it's gonna be this weepy thing right and it doesn't do that and not only does it not do that but it like abandons the brain tumor completely like it's not even a thing that yeah, they don't like, even bring it up so yeah. it's just such a bizarre like well i could you could feel the studio note of she gets saved for, spoilers from the kidnapping yeah and the last thing you want on that high note is to remind it's, everybody about the brain tumor. right but it's such which a which, weird, which which is yeah. in a vacuum i get but it is weird but but just to well, kind of <laughs> because these are fictional characters and you didn't have to tell us about the brain tumor in the well, fucking first place I, that's, well that's, that's kind of yeah anything. it's like just cut it out of the that's just cut the, it out of the movie completely just cut it out yeah. of the movie i, I agree with yeah. that 100 percent. you should just not have had it's it. so bizarre when you decide to go this way which basically what we find out is Austin Pendleton was in on it with his like sister, sister and brother-in-law brother yeah. and they have her in their farmhouse in a very fucking Lindbergh baby type of way like buried alive literally it buried is, alive it, Shirley MacLaine is some buried alive true but here's the craziest <laughs> thing but the craziest thing is the way that Nick Cage finds out is they interrogate Austin Pendleton oh God, yeah. and he shoots Austin Pendleton's toe off and in a way to get I, him to break in a way that i wasn't sure that it happened like that's that that uh that scene is so weird because i it it feels like such of a of a farce right within yes within, farcical yes, yeah within yes. within this movie that i was waiting because james rayborn's sitting there the whole time being like don't do this like right. we know right. that you're not we've now proven that you're not involved and like we you know we know you can help us and we want to work with you but like don't do this thing because you're gonna fuck it all up or whatever and cage it's the truly the maybe the he gets kind of one other moment a little earlier uh after the joyriding sequence but this is truly like the cage the cage out that this movie contains right where he freaks out and he takes out his gun and he holds it to Austin Pendleton's toes and he threatens to blow one of his toes off or whatever. And then you like hear the gun go off and they don't show anything or or linger on anything to show you that this has happened. So what I was expecting was that it was going to be like blanks or something, you know, like he was just bluffing and he just wanted to scare it out of him. 
But that's not what the movie does. And instead it's like, oh, you just blow his toe off. And it's like, okay, I guess we're going to take your word for that. This feels really weird. Like it's yeah. so strange. It's the fucking weirdest scene. <laughs> and, and if you couldn't tell by the way that the entire movie has been spoiled, it, it we're actually making it sound more interesting than it is. I, I kind of put this on. I think this is one of the first ones I, I rewatched um, thinking like, Oh, this is going to be kind of mecha core, like down the middle. It's going to be really pleasant and sweet in a kind of like, you know, you pine for the days of when movies like this got released. And then, the experience of watching it kind of disproves that theory in a way where you're like, oh, well, this really does not work. And 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 there's this there's this moment in the movie dramatically where she's kind of seeing a TV broadcast where he's being loyal to her husband, you know, the former president who's now deceased. And that's the turn for her to stop torturing him, even though. She's sort of wanting to keep him around. Well, I think the other he's he's crying at the funeral. Yeah, right. But like they couldn't have done this years before that. She's still being like kind of. Well, I think I I think the other key thing there and they don't really highlight this specifically is that she doesn't watch the news. She watches taped old news broadcasts and like runs those back and stuff like that. So I'll give the movie the benefit of the doubt of like. She just never noticed it before, and now she's in this particularly vulnerable moment, noticing it now because she's watching. Well, no, I think the movie actually does. Actually, I think the movie does actually a pretty good job of it because she, she fast, she always fast forwards through the funeral, right? Because it bothers her. Yeah, and this time she catches that Nick Cage is is crying, which is obviously on Secret Service like. But I mean, like the most interesting things about this movie, which I basically agree. I mean, me and Corey, you know, obviously all of us talk all the time with Cinephile Game Night. We do a lot of things together. A, a running joke, I did, Corey, I think we would agree between me and you is like our letterboxes are different. We're like <laughs> I, I, a two star movie for you a lot of times is a three star movie for me. And funny enough, I think every movie we logged, I was looking at it is literally that it's like I think our opinions are identical for all these movies but it's like i gave red rock west four stars you gave it three stars i gave the mecca three stars you gave it two stars and i openly admit like i i am the older i get the more i just generally also you're both wrong red rock west is four and a half easy four and a half so so so, but 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 there's a couple nice things in guarding test like they do a woodrow wilson thing where it's like she kind or Nancy Reagan thing, I think is more appropriate, I suppose, where she was kind of running the country. They allude to the fact that she was really the one running the country at the end there. And like Nicolas Cage basically admits like, yeah, we all kind of knew that. Right. And like the president was having affairs and you you think I didn't know, but I knew. And like those exchanges are why you'd watch the movie. Yeah, because the, you're ke- getting, the chemistry is great. It's amazing. You're getting great. You're getting great moments with two great actors who who are very different. I mean, Shirley MacLaine is fundamentally way more, I'd argue, internal, which makes a performance like Aurora in terms of endearment so important because the moments when she breaks is why Terms of Endearment is a masterpiece because Deborah Winger is like acting her face off like right. very loudly, you know, in which was a point of contention on the sets, right? I mean, literally. And like McLean is so subdued that and she's so cold 
And so when there's that breaking point in that movie, which in terms of endearment, it's just a, a fucking just a masterwork of just performance and writing. So you're getting like the smallest amount of that in this, right? Which is just you're getting these two actors who are so different, so fundamentally different. You're putting them next to each other. The chemistry somehow works. And it, though in those moments, you would say, yeah, guarding test works. But then, of course, the, then he's shooting Austin Pendleton's toe off. It's like yeah. very well, strange. Uh, I, I yeah. think that Cage is tightly wound for most of this movie, but he does explode in a few scenes. And I think this movie is kind of representative of, you know, it could happen to you and Family Man and this, you know, right. things where, where it isn't the gonzo Nicolas Cage. It isn't the Cage being, you know, that I'm going to come you in agree. for 30 minutes and like do the wildest thing. It's kind of him being a little more of the straight man. And yet the moments where he does kind of color outside the lines, I think. Yeah make his performance more interesting and, than 99% of actors would have played this well, and even role. And even in his subdued roles, he, his face, his expressiveness is so important in well, terms of the difference, yeah. I think. And, he, you know, so that, that's and even when he's allowed, crucial thing. I think even when he's allowed, because he just has that way that he talks and his face looks a certain way. He's kind of like a like a hound, you know, he's just got kind of this like long face. And I think when he's also allowed to be kind of like droll and, and blank, but in an intentional way, as opposed to, like I said, like the occasionally unfortunate, like checked out way. Uh, I think that's what works here too. It's, it's, it's the deadpan that like, that works really nicely. It's not, um, it's not like a complete time waste. I don't think you necessarily need to put this at the top of your list of like unseen cage movies if it's there, but like it's definitely not, uh, you know. Uh, the the one positive thing I'll say in this movie's defense is I did, did get a kick out of the absolute ending, which I thought was sort of a fun phantom threadish note where I feel like she sort of wants to be dominated in a way like Daniel Day yeah. Lewis, you know, like there's kind of a little bit of like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's kind yeah. of what they're like going a for with this relationship type thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great last moment. Actually, I will say, um, quick, quick, uh, quiz guys. What is Nicholas Cage's worldwide highest grossing movie worldwide box office highest grossing worldwide box office movie what is it what do you think oh um is this i is guess it like, a national treasure but uh, but i don't national know national treasure two book of secrets is two okay and national treasure one is five okay so if book of secrets is two i'm trying to think of things that he's and like, i'm getting these numbers from the numbers so that, the is website. it uh is it into the spider-verse into the Spider Verse is three, and The Rock is four. Oh, do you have and, a clue? But for fun us? fact, fun fact: Into the Spider Verse is the right way to think about it in terms of the type of performance. Oh, is so it anime- Kickass? No, it's a voice. It's a yeah. It's a it's voice an animated performance. performance. Animated. Oh, Ant Bully. No, that didn't do that well. Actually, no, right. he was in it. Fuck! What else was he? Oh my oh, it's god! The Croods. It's one of the, the Croods. Yeah, uh, it's the first Croods. Yeah, it's we all remember Croods where we were when the Croods yeah. came okay. out. Um, and then his sixth highest-grossing movie is another voice performance, G Force. Isn't that crazy? That movie, G, it's like I don't the, even, it's like the gerbil. Gerbils, they're like gerbils. Yeah. Uh, anyway, oh, right. so. Now, Connor, Corey, which one of you guys wants to do the very quick plot synopsis for the Kiss of Death remake, which is our final movie? 
Connor, go ahead. I'll go for it. So Kiss of Death, like I mentioned earlier, uh, it's a remake of a Henry Hathaway movie from 47, I believe. Yeah, I'll check. But yeah, I think correct right. me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah, 47. Yeah. And it basically, they do diverge. Um, they do diverge in, in a, a, number, a number of different ways, but the overall core of the story is basically the same. Uh, this version stars uh, David Caruso, as Jimmy Kilmartin, who's he's basically this uh, ex-con who is in living with Helen Hunt, who's his wife and uh, her sister. Right? Is it her sister, or is it just no, like no, no, their no. nanny? No, no, no. It's the it's like the babysitter. It, yeah, yeah it's, it's just, just like she lives in the building. Yeah, she doesn't okay. live with them. Yeah, got it. Um, but anyway, she's played by uh, Catherine Irby, who. Of cold case. Yes. Of cold case. Um, And essentially they are both. uh, He's an ex-con. They're both sober and they have a daughter. And Michael Rappaport, who plays uh, Jimmy's cousin, David Caruso's cousin, ropes him into a last minute gig of transporting these stolen cars for um for Philip Baker Hall who's essentially this mob boss whose son is uh Nicolas Cage right and he's sort of like the next in line and in this sort of height you know whatever uh in this sort of transport this convoy they get pulled over and uh the person who does so is Sam Jackson. There's a bit of an altercation and Sam Jackson winds up getting shot in the face despite David Caruso trying to sort of stop that from happening. And Caruso basically winds up going down for a number of years for what happens. While he's in the can, uh, Michael Rappaport essentially kind of basically fucks over Helen Hunt because He's essentially supposed to be giving her money per the orders of Philip Baker Hall. He winds up taking a bit of a cut of it. And not only that, but he so he recruits her to kind of help manage his chop shop business while also basically getting her off the wagon in the process. Um, And in doing that, she winds up dying uh, and Jimmy winds up sort of being given a sort of a what do you call it? A. uh, like a furlough or a leave to, to go yeah, to, to see his daughter, yeah, to, to go see, to the funeral. Yeah. And he realizes that Rappaport was involved, uh, in what happened to Helen Hunt. And he basically sells him out essentially. So Nicholas Cage then winds up killing Michael Rappaport because he realizes he's some sort of a, a rat. And, <laughs> and meanwhile, the uh, the DA who's Stanley Tucci and uh, Sam Jackson, who's working with him, uh, wind up basically trying to use Jimmy to like really take down uh, ultimately Nicolas Cage. Right. Yeah. yeah. Car- Caruso is is the snitch, but he's he's doing it so that it seems like Rappaport is the snitch. Right. That's right. The, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So that's it. So, yeah. So ultimately, Caruso, he does his time. He gets out. And then it just becomes a relatively 
in that from a plot sense, a relatively standard like he's undercover snitching to the you know to the cops uh trying to essentially catch nicholas cage in the act ving rames pops up for a hot second uh and it all kind of goes from there it becomes this sort of soupy convoluted film noir well uh, i mean basically richard price wrote the screenplay yeah. for this movie it takes I mean, it's like we were saying before, it, it convolutes what's a pretty straightforward original movie, right? Which yeah. is basically like this Diamond Heist goes wrong in the original movie. He goes to jail. His wife kills herself. He gets out and he goes yeah. on a vengeance spree. The, right? the, That's broad, the broad movie. strokes are still there. I they're think, still there, but yeah. they're, they add a lot of stuff, which I don't really I, – I get it. And I don't even – I think some of it works yeah, in the remake. Um But I think, you know, Victor Mature is the lead in the original – and Richard Widmark plays Tommy Udo in the original, and it's an iconic villain character. And he's just, he is a psychopath. Yeah, it's right. A, it's and a star not, making but performance for Widmark. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. his first movie role. He got nominated. He, it's an amazing performance. Yeah. But he's not the lead gangster, right? He is like the lackey who is crazy, right? So Cage is clearly pulling from the Widmark performance, but playing the gangster who's in charge. So it's kind of a weird thing where there is no Tommy Udo character in the remake, which was a point of contention in some of the reviews. But you're basically, Connor said this earlier, Cage is playing Little Junior Brown, and it's basically him doing his Richard Widmark, which yeah. is kind of cool. And he's certainly the best part of the movie. Yeah, Context is important. Caruso is coming off of NYPD Blue. He just left after season one playing Lieutenant John Kelly. It's an amazing performance if you haven't watched that show. That he left is a fucking crime because he's so good on that show. And that show was so good. But he wanted to be a movie star. So he did this movie. He did Jade. They both failed badly. And he kind of fell back. I also think he wasn't particularly nice to people, uh, as we know now. We, a bit we talked a little stories. bit. We talked a little bit about him. When we our... did Proof of Life. Yeah. No, no. Well, I was going to say, yeah. So we talked about him in Proof of Life because he's pretty good in that. And we talked yeah. about him in our Bill Murray episode where we talk about Mad Dog and Glory because he's good in yeah. that too. Also written by Richard Price. And it's, yeah. yeah. And I, so I think those two things are good for context, just at least in the sense of yeah. he, he's a little bit different than, than some dudes who maybe fell off the map for one reason or another. And that he showed up in things and like, and not only was good, but like was the better things about, well, but I want to. Yeah. So, Corey, Corey, you diss Caruso in your letterbox <laughs> review, and I was joking with you about it. So, my here's my thing. Yeah. I actually, wait, wait. I think you you have to read the review, though. You can't. Okay, read it. Read <laughs> yeah, it go for ahead. Us. Yeah, from from okay. the horse's mouth, Corey. What do you have read to say it. about David Caruso? Read it. Okay, oh, no, so, it was just a slight dig. Yeah, I remember. So, my review was of Kiss of Death, which I gave two stars. An incredible cast. Parenth parentheses and also david caruso star in this mid-90s <laughs> crime thriller that's more forgettable Savage. and less fun than it should be with that pedigree that was my review now no like i said i gave it three stars though i do kind of understand where you're coming from yeah. now so caruso i think in this movie is very good i think and i think that there's a couple scenes in the back half of the movie where it's kind of him v cage that to me is not unlike your we it's unlike it in every way but in terms of different acting styles you have caruso and cage not unlike 
McLean and Cage, where you're like watching these two actors, you're like, this is crazy that these two actors are even in the same frame, sure. let alone trading lines of dialogue. And it, for my money, it works, which I think probably more for me than it did for you, Corey. Um, and it, between this movie and Jade, which are like the two Caruso, can he be a movie star movies? And then he like makes CSI Miami like four years later, right? Yeah. So it was, it was a brief window. Um, this is the one to visit because I do think he's good. I think it's like the perfect role for him. It's a shame it wasn't success. Barbette Schroeder directed it. He's a very good director, I, very capable <laughs> director. We did another one of his We've movies. We've done a couple of his movies, actually. Yeah, Murder by Numbers, and, uh, Desperate Measures. And yeah. uh, Before and Desperate After. Measures. Oh wow! We've done we've done four. four. This will be the fourth. Like, oh I, my like, god! Who knows? How? The B side king. Yeah, B side king. <laughs> on a long enough timeline, we'll somehow cover probably all of his filmography. Well, we if, can't do we can't do well no because we can't do Reversal of Fortune because that's not a B side. No, not the, for the, him the, maybe, but maybe for some of the people in it. I, you know what I'm I mean? I'm not like, sure. If, I'm yeah. not sure if all the listeners know, but the B and B side stands for Barbette. 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 Yeah, Barbette. Barbette. Barbette side. Um, no, I just I I'm glad you mentioned that because I like was laughing to myself because I didn't know he directed this and I was like oh it's another one um yeah I think I I basically thought this movie's okay I what's I'm kind of glad I know we mentioned before that maybe it, it, we regrettably picked like three neo noirs to to cover out of our four movies but I did like watching this movie against uh, specifically Deadfall. Because I do think it's like the much more successful version of it in that it's an exercise in style. It Especially especially for Cage. Yes. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's an exercise in style for sure in terms of like what can we transpose from the genre, like directly, right? Because it's obviously a remake of like a very good film noir. Um, but also like in the difference between Caruso and Bean, right? Like Bean is like drowning. In Deadfall. And granted, it's not a very good movie. It's not a good script. So we won't hold that against him. But I do think there is a difference when you look at Caruso in this movie as someone who gets the score in terms of being able to navigate what kind of uh, what kind of movie he's in. Right. And I think you kind of alluded to it uh, a little earlier, Dan. I think the big pitfall with this movie and the where it kind of falls apart is that it it makes a lot of really good decisions. I think particularly as it relates to depictions of law enforcement and, and the movie's opinion of law enforcement and that, and the whole sort of judicial system, right. That the original movie clearly doesn't have, cause it's very much like a, you know, the district attorney is good and the cops are good and you know, whatever. And this movie clearly at least decides to kind of indict that a little bit, which I appreciate. And I think is smart. Um, I think, the problem that they find themselves in as they navigate those waters is they're like, okay, well, if the cops are also bad, then they have to have an angle and that needs to play out in a specific way. And we need to kind of like draw that out somehow. Right. And then I think the other mistake they make is they tie. So the Michael Rappaport character isn't really a character in the original. It's sort of just a kind of faceless gangster from an old job that the Victor Mature slash uh, David Caruso character like that they experienced 
or uh, that they worked with uh, earlier on, right? Whereas in making it Michael Rappaport, they're like, oh, we kind of need to give him a specific reason to want to fuck this guy over as opposed to just giving him up, right? And so they tie in the Michael Rappaport thing with the Helen Hunt thing, and it all technically works on paper, but it just feels like this movie in terms of doing that and exploring things, it like creates three too many threads that like don't, that there's a beauty to the simplicity of the original, even though it makes some missteps in terms of it's like general worldview. Um, so it's tough because I, I think I would sooner recommend the original. I think it's just, if you want a really good, solid uh, kind of unimpeachable film noir with an amazing Richard Woodmark performance, like watch that. I think watching them as a pair, which is what I did. I had seen the original before, but I rewatched it right before watching this. And it was fascinating to kind of like, it's a great exercise in how to remake something in terms of what you can do right and what you can totally do wrong, I think. Yeah, and I think Nick Cage, right, Corey? I mean, is is the highlight, right? Would would you, would you not agree with that? Um, oh God, is he the highlight? I don't know about that. I, I, this movie I had seen, I, I can't remember if I actually had it on VHS for some reason or just had not seen it in a while. But this is a movie that I feel like the cast itself is incredible. Like most of the movies we've actually discussed this episode, like the ensemble is, you know, unimpeachable in terms of it's, you know, 1995, it's post Pulp Fiction and True Romance. You've got um, Ving Rhames and Samuel L. Jackson the year after Pulp Fiction. You've got Philip Baker Hall and Sam Jackson after Heart Eight. Like um, you've got, you know, Hope Davis, who's kind of still not really, you know, anybody yet. And who um, I actually and, didn't even recognize when she right, popped who, up until like who, later in the movie. Who Cage is like bench pressing at an early <laughs> scene in the movie. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, for me, this one doesn't really work that well um i think cage is you know again kind of trying some different things and i think uh, unlike deadfall where he's going kind of so far outside the lines um i think this works more in the context of the movie i just don't think the movie works all that well as far as david caruso i did not watch nypd blue and so watching a movie like this or jade i'm just like i literally just don't get it and yet I've like been on the other side too, where I feel like, you know, a show like Veronica Mars, like unlocked Kristen Bell for me, a show like Alias unlocked Jennifer Garner for me in a way that like their film roles didn't until I saw them in those shows. Matthew Fox on Lost, but in his film work, it like didn't really work. David Caruso yeah, Ma- and Ma- this. Matthew, Matthew Fox had a David Caruso-esque. Yeah thing it didn't happen it like did not happen yeah yeah in this i'm just like i just i don't get caruso at all like i completely believe that he's great on nypd blue and maybe even after seeing that you would kind of read something else out of this film but watching him in this he just seems like he's surrounded by you know half the cast of pulp fiction and it's just like he has no business being here and holding the screen with most of these actors doesn't it seem though i I think that's fair when you look at the pedigree. I think there's also a degree of, I do think, to be honest, there is a degree of context you're leaving out there, right? Because it's like 
it's a different time, right? So now you're looking at it like Sam Jackson, Stanley Tucci, Hope Davis, Nick right, Cage, right. right? How like and then David Caruso, right? So I can under I can understand singling him out in, in from a now uh, per- perspective, right? But I think the when I look when I think about him in this moment in the early '90s, uh, I think he. And I can't necessarily I'm not going to speak to him as a person because I don't you know, I don't know expli- yeah, yeah, yeah. explicitly how that affected his career and maybe it affected it in a totally fair way or whatever. But I will say, I think he also didn't fall in with like the right people in terms of like filmmakers, because I can like I can see what he's doing here and totally appreciate it and think to myself, like David Crusoe could have fucking been in Manhunter. Right. Like he could have been like he could have like found his way maybe a little bit more strongly if he had maybe been like given sort of better direction by better directors. Well, he yeah, he had a weird I mean, I know a lot about his career for whatever that's worth. I mean, well, you're the leader of the David Caruso fan club on Twitter. He had a weird (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe he had a weird he was a he so he's in thief of hearts and he's the crazy best friend and he's in these movies right early on this is the 80s he's like the good cop the one good cop in first blood yeah right um so he's like oscillating between the good guy and the crazy guy and the red hair obviously speaks to that right like he's got this crazy red hair he's got this very distinct look he's one of the uh, wordless assassins in the movie Hudson Hawk, which yeah. is a movie I, I love, <laughs> love, love Hudson Hawk. Great movie. People are wrong. The movie is basically amazing. Um, and he's one of the assassins, and it's a great comic performance. And he's one of the other cops in Mad Dog and Glory. He's very funny in that, and he's like intense Irish cop. And he's one of the leads in King of New York. Right. right? And he's right. like the Irish cop. So he's, but he's like a good base. I mean, he's not a, he's an intense cop in that movie, but he's like in the world of that movie, one of the good ones, right? Like, which is that's, you know, Abel Ferrara, you drop it down an octave in terms of what good means. Sure. But you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, so he's doing these two things. And then the John Kelly character in NYPD Blue is this beautiful intermediary where it's like he is a good cop but he toes the line he's maybe not the best guy but his heart's in the right place and it's just like he is he just pops in a way like you can't like like you're to your point Corey. like like jennifer garner and alias where you're just like holy shit who's this guy right and it's just a shame it never got translated and to your point connor yeah like if he got hooked up with you know Tarantino oh, two years or, before yeah, yeah. Michael whatever I mean yeah William Peterson is probably a good comp because it's a similar actor it's the brooding it's the whatever it's the good looking but in a weird way blah 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 and yeah Manhunter to live and die in LA and then CSI 10 years later it's a similar career in a lot of ways actually but um so maybe that actually serves to disprove our point which yeah, is like yeah, no, doesn't right, matter who right, yeah. but 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 yeah, it, this isn't the David Crusoe podcast, but the point is, it's an interesting. <laughs> you're right, Corey, in the sense of now watching it and watching Crusoe go toe to toe with you know Nick Cage as Little Junior Brown. It's very weird because you're like, what? What right. was 1995 like? I do think I'll defend. I think Cage is really good in this movie because I, I do think he learned from Deadfall. I would think and and kind of harnesses it in a pretty a pretty. I think it's a pretty. 
a pretty like weirdly effective scary role like when he's crying after his dad dies and he's like dancing alone that's like a manic moment that i think he wields a he wields a sensitivity into it in a very um so i've just not quick aside or whatever i've recently started my rewatch of the sopranos right and i feel like Cage taps into a very like David Chasey Sopranos-esque thing where he's got the asthma, right? Which we, you know, and he's got, he's got like these little peccadillos. He feels like a character that could have been from The Wire or The Sopranos or something like that. And he, he taps into this like weird, I don't even want to say sensitivity, but certainly a vulnerability yeah, yeah with, that is that is striking uh, given what you expect the character is going to be. Right. And I think. I think it goes back just to bring it all the way back. I think it goes back to what I mentioned about Red Rock West that I think he taps into more effectively here where you're like, OK, cool. Like this guy's quiet and he's and I and you see him go, you know, you see him do the mad dog thing on a on Rappaport, right? And that's like a relatively early scene. So you know what he's capable of, but it's so effective because in all of his scenes with Caruso, where they're talking, you're like waiting. You're like, when is this dude just going to fucking eat everybody alive? Like, and that I think, that I think is the reason he's the, he's the best part of the movie. And I think is, like all the things we've talked about, he's the reason to watch it in, in that regard. Like, I think the movie is overall, okay and i think if it didn't have him as your villain i think it would be little more than maybe a somewhat interesting curio for people who like the genre but i think him doing what he's doing in it would be something that i would maybe spot check to people uh, above a curio right like just to be like hey like you know if you want to see a good nick cage performance check out kiss of death because he's like interesting in it yeah i think i think he's doing a lot here but unlike deadfall it all works within the the world of this film yeah. i you know and if you haven't seen this before he's like physically very different you know yeah. he's dressed in all white he's got a sleeveless shirt he's got a goatee he's kind of balding he might he's be muscular the, yeah, he has a bigger frame yeah. you know he might be the most um, physically and, imposing i think i've ever seen him on screen if i'm being honest yeah to- totally and yeah. He, he, physically he looks very different you know it's kind of a prelude to roles like con air where he truly is like oh shit you know he's like a much bigger guy he's sort of doing a boston accent here yeah. i'm not really sure what's <laughs> happening with that but yeah. um it's it's it, like you said with the sopranos it's like he's not really convincingly scary but he's sort of intentionally doing this more like wounded man child like this kind of daddy's boy like his his tough guy is kind of a put on but he's he's putting that in the role on purpose which i think does sort of make it more interesting than a more straight down the middle you know, more like the deadfall, like I'm the crazy guy, I'm the live wire, you know, you should be afraid of me. You know, this is this is a guy who, you know, his physicality is that, you know, you should fear me. But really, you know, you can see his kind of weakness, you know, right there on the outside from the asthma inhaler and the, you know, mm-hmm. the daddy's boy nature. He's got the character. whole thing with the with silverware, too. Like he's got that whole like he can't eat with silverware because he just can't. He gags at like a metallic taste or whatever. Like, right. Yeah. Like little peccadillos like that. Um, And guys, I have to correct myself. 
Um, Catherine Urbe is the star of Law and Order Criminal Intent. Oh, God. Catherine Morris is the star of Cold Case. <laughs> so to both Catherines, I do apologize. I just, I, 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 I had to check myself. And I, in fact, I wrecked myself. So I do apologize. Um, She's also okay. in Sir so, of Echoes, which is, I think, what I immediately recognize. Catherine Urbe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a good movie. Um, so then, obviously, this same year, like we mentioned, he's in Leaving Las Vegas and he'll win the Oscar. This, and yeah, then, this is the same year he wins the Oscar. I mean, the most interesting thing about this is he's not one of the leads. You know, he's playing the colorful character actor part in the very same year he wins best actor for leaving las vegas and so it's that even in 95 at this point in his career you know even if he has has ambitions of being tom cruise or being a leading man he's not you know at all flinching at the idea of i'm gonna come in and be in 30 minutes of this movie and leave you know the biggest impression in a cast of just you know incredible actors and I don't necessarily like I can't speak to the initial critical reception of this movie when it came out, but I could uh, I could totally see a contemporary. I mean, it is contemporary, but uh, like a more current comp to the Oscar narrative and this movie factoring into that because that shit happens all the time. Right. Where it's like someone shows up, gives an amazing performance in a maybe movie that nobody expected to work or whatever, right? Like leave, like leaving Las Vegas, but gives the ama- amazing performance you can't ignore. And then in these, as the narrative, you know, of award season drives on, you're like, oh, should we give it to this guy? And then you have little things that pop up where it's like, oh yeah, but he popped up in Kiss of Death and that movie's not great, but he's good in it. And I feel like that happens a lot uh, with, Oscar narratives, right? Where it's like there's the main performance and then the, but then there's like maybe the other little things that buoy it, right? Like like a McConaughey or a uh, you know, like like that kind of thing where it's like there's the other body of work that's maybe happening concurrently that people are like, "Oh yeah, like maybe it's time." And then and then he stole the Declaration of Independence. It's like <laughs> it's so crazy, you know? Um we'll never can we... forget where we were. <laughs> hey man, can we just can we someone call John Disney and see if they can just make a National Treasure they, three? They are making it, right? I mean, are they? Because let's just get let's get the trilogy yeah. finished. You know what I'm I, saying? What are we doing here? I have not. Uh, I have not rewatched the second one. I rewatched. The I have first. rewatched both. Yeah, I rewatched. They the, rule. Even the they're, second they're the one? most they're the most mecha core of it all. They're like, no, I mean, I get Nick the, the first one the is middle. fun, and I'm they're I'm, both I'm fun. In. Yeah, they're both I don't fun. Know. Um, there's a, you get it in the declaration of independence then you get a book of secrets it's really it's documents no, it's good I, and i feel I, like i don't <laughs> go ahead Corey. yeah Corey, I, go I was ahead. gonna say i read that the the hang up on the third one because you know there's been delays and it's been you know a few years since the second one is that cage has insisted on reprising his deadfall character for the third time and <laughs> well, so i, like I think that. that's the hang up at disney Ooh, I like, just, honestly you know, Eddie would, King would, would, steals the you know, whatever, or if he pulls an adaptation and it's a dual role where he's Benjamin Gates and Eddie King, so he's like the hero and the villain. Let's do it. Great. In what's Turtle Top um, doing? So uh, what? So as we wrap up here, Corey, what's what? What is your favorite Nick Cage performance? What's your personal favorite Nick Cage performance? Do you, did any come to mind? <sighs> That's a great question. I mean, I think the thing that was really fun about doing this episode, and so I watched, uh, I think like you guys, we even went a little outside of what we discussed here, is I watched 
Six Nick Nicolas Cage movies in the last week, The Rock and Moonstruck, in addition to the four that we discussed. And, you know, watched a few interviews on YouTube and just kind of seeing it how much like from the very beginning, I, I think I sent I sent you guys this interview he did on Dick Cavett. And this was in 1986. Um, and feel free to link to this. But it was the year before Moonstruck and Raising Arizona when he really kind of broke out. But he has this interview where he sort of already lays out, you know, what he wants to do, you know, with his career and his style of acting and all this stuff that just made me kind of recontextualize, you know, everything that came after in terms of, you know, you may think you're laughing at Nicolas Cage in Deadfall or Vampire's Kiss, but, you know, it, according to Nicolas Cage, you're laughing with him, you know, like he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, I don't know future acting. I just, I feel like we're, we're going into the nineties now. And, uh, I just think that we're going to see some new things in, uh, in acting. It's, uh, you know, I go to a museum and I see a Picasso and I think, you know, why is it that he can get away with uh, drawing his wife with spikes coming out of her head or, or having her mouth touch the floor? I envy him. I said, well, why can't I do that? Yeah. And I think that uh, to an extent, we might, we, there might be things like that in the future and surrealism and such. But you don't do grotesquely unreal No, no. I just don't think there really is such a thing as an edge. I think that in art, there's, there's uh, no right or wrong. And uh, just to keep an open mind and do whatever's creative expression. You know, some of these movies worked a little better and some of these movies didn't work as much. But the thing that I kind of said earlier was just that, like, I never saw a movie that would have been great if he hadn't ruined it with his performance. It's either that he's doing something interesting in a bad movie or he's doing something interesting that's kind of great in a good movie, but I've never seen a movie that was kind of tanked by him coloring outside the lines. I mean, even if you look at something like, you know, um, Into the Spider-Verse, you know, or something like Kick-Ass, where he sort of showed up on set day one and is doing an Adam West impersonation. And Matthew Vaughn was like, what the fuck is he doing? You know, what are we going to do? Am I going to tell him no? And he didn't. He kind of let him do it. And that was not at all sort of what was on the page or what anybody had in mind. And yet, you know, because he's willing to take these big risks, I feel like, well, that's what kind of elevates that movie a little bit. And even if you take something that's a little bit down the middle, you know, like a family man where you go, this could have been a hundred actors, you know, in the year 2000 playing this role. And yet, you know, the Nicolas Cage isms that he's bringing to this movie, you know, not only is he playing the kind of real true emotional moments and the more restrained moments, but it's when he colors outside the lines and when he kind of goes a little bigger that makes it memorable. And and I think overall, it's just been seeing like, you know, that he's sort of, you know, like Babe Ruth sort of very early on, you know, in that Dick Cavett interview sort of called this shot, you know, pointed to the stands and said, here's what I would like to do. Here's the type of acting that I'm interested in in my career. And so you can look at some of these roles and say, well, you know, that's not grounded or realistic or what have you. But it's like, you know, you watch even from the very beginning, you know, you can watch a GQ interview with him and see him, you know, and maybe think, well, that's after the fact, you know, maybe after everyone pointed out that this was ridiculous, he sort of, you know, recontextualize it. But no, it's actually, you know, watch this Dick Cavett interview. It's beforehand. You know, he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think he's an actor who, you know, you put him 
you know, in something left field or noir or, you know, interesting where he can really cut loose. And I think he brings something to it. And I think you put him in something like The Rock or National Treasure or The Family Man, where there's not really even seemingly room for an interesting performance. And yet he still adds a little something to it. And so I think just kind of um, celebrating both his range and his fearlessness is the is the thing that I really take away from this revisit. Um, personal favorites, maybe either Raising Arizona or Adaptation, um, but... But uh, you want to spot check, but yeah, maybe we haven't called out if people haven't seen them or. Oh, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think I think if you're just sort of a cage, you know, adventurist and, and you want to see the gonzo shit, I mean, definitely, I think the Vampire's Kiss, Deadfall, uh, Bad Lieutenant, uh, Port of Call, New Orleans are sort of a, a good place to start. But um yeah, just really ap- appreciating his fearlessness. And because I think there's not a lot of actors willing to go out there to the degree that he does. And I think when it pays off, it it really does pay off. Yeah, I'll go. I mean, I'll go Matchstick Men yeah. as my favorite. I'm glad yeah, you I love that. Yeah. We haven't talked about it, but that's certainly worth seeking out. I, I think out. if I, I was going to say if we didn't, if we the other one would have been Lord of War. Yeah, everybody, no, should, I, everybody should watch Lord. I was going to say yeah. if we didn't stick to a specific period, I was going to probably call out Matchstick Men as maybe one of our B sides. I don't know if it would count, but it is a truly. Uh, it's a great performance, and I think another really good. You know, Wind Talkers, Captain Crowley's Mandolin. <laughs> those are those are like heavy studio B sides. So sure. Captain Crowley's Mandolin holds such a specific place in my memory because you play the mandolin. Because I play the mandolin, of course. No, only because of how forgettable it is. Like you know what I mean? Like where it's like that's just a movie that fucking got made and whatever so it's something that i keep meaning to find a way to make one of our b-sides one day but so maybe if we do a penelope cruz b-side or something uh i'll i'll bring that up or whatever but yeah i think um yeah lord of war is another great call out also probably not a b-side but he's very good in it it's a really good movie um and then and and, you know I, I think the last, you know, decade or so of his career, you know, I, I feel like I really haven't seen, you know, most of it by any stretch. There's been a lot in there, but I feel like I check in every year or two and there's always something, you know, like we mentioned that sticks out, you know, whether it's Pig or Mandy or, um, you know, Joe or, or something like that, where he's still kind of finding ways to, you know, get noticed or do good work, you know, regardless of the parts that he's being offered, you know, so the thing that I would love to see in the future is just another filmmaker, you know, on the caliber of a Spike Jones with adaptation who, you know, appreciates, you know, what Nick Cage can do and what he's great at and is sort of crafting a star role, you know, worthy of his talents. And I, you know, as much as I love seeing him and, you know, Gonzo, Fantastic Fast Fair, you know, which is, which is fun and, and can be, you know, great at times. I, I would really love to see a comeback, you know, in the mainstream in terms of him being able to, you know, sort of have a part that, you know, suits suits him with the, with a filmmaker who recognizes, you know, what he can do. I think I think Pig is a really good indication of that only because, like I mentioned before, it's I think what you expect going into that movie and what 
it it's different. I, I, honestly, the last comp I can think of would be Joe, right? Because it's not, you, you know, you think it might be one thing or you think you expect one thing and you get another. But I do think everybody seems to be on the same page with that movie, which is nice, right? With Pig, right? And just in terms of its general, like, oh, yeah, no, he's great. And like, we forgot that he's great. And, and here he is again. So, you know, yeah, you, you hope that it, you hope that it sticks, I suppose, right? Because it, it, um, I do think it's a really good, it seems like the kind of movie that could be a comeback vehicle, even if it's maybe, you know, you could maybe think of it not to reduce everything to awards or whatever, but in a sort of ongoing pandemic, you know, year, I, I could see a performance like that still kind of resonating and rising to the top, which like, I would love to see that happen for him. But yeah, I think it'll keep making lower tier stuff, but you know, we'll but always even, have a, there'll always be a pig to come back. Yeah. To. And I think to your point earlier, Dan, though, there are, and it's, it's tough to parse because like it, it all looks like shit, right? When you look at it at a glance, but like, and I haven't seen all of the quote unquote lower tier stuff, like the direct to video stuff, but I have seen ones like you, some of the ones we mentioned before that like are good and fun. And again, I do think, I think there is a degree of meeting those movies on their level a little bit, you know, but generally speaking, there are a handful of ones in there that are like good and like totally watchable and really enjoyable. Um, so I weirdly am kind of curious, like I almost, and maybe I'll be like biting my tongue later or something, but like, I, I'm almost curious to like dive into a lot of them to be like, Oh, maybe this is like worth my time. But uh, yeah. Any other final thoughts before we wrap it up on, on, on the cage? Who, who would you guys like to see cage work with? Hmm. Oh man. I mean, you know, I think you would think like him with Malik would be interesting just cause it seems so counterintuitive, you know, or like, or, you know, it's funny, like Sofia Coppola, like their cousins, right? Yeah. Or something. I, right. I mean, right. Like, what, I would that, that, what would that yeah. be like? You know, that feels this, easy, I suppose. This but. also feels like an easy answer, but I was thinking like... Or Gia Coppola. Yeah. I, w- yeah. I was thinking like, the. I feel like the softies could probably tap into the right amount oh, of cage. that's it. That's the answer. You know, like, I, think, again, I think they would that get feels it. Like, that feels like a very basic film Twittery A24 fanboy thing to say, and I don't really mean it that way, but I do, I do earnestly think that they could, you know, seeing obviously what they can do with Sandler, I do think, Nick Cage and Adam Sandler to a degree aren't that different of actors in some regards. And so I think somebody who could kind of tap into that level of like, Oh, here's when we unleash. Right. And like, you kind of can ride that roller coaster a little bit. I think they would be really good at, I am a little, uh, it's, it is a little bit of a bummer that his, uh, his forays with Schrader haven't really panned out. Because I do think. Oh, see, I don't know if I agree though. Because di- yeah, I mean, Dying in the Light, somewhat famously yeah. got taken from. Them yeah, it got and, like bungled basically. Uh, but from a studio. But um, but Doggy Dog, I think you're getting a lot of good cage. No, 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 I guess more from a. I you, you would have expected that movie to hopefully stick a little bit more for cage, yeah. and it and it doesn't. So like you know. I don't know who else I'd call out, though, that I think, you know, the Coppola, the Sofia Coppola thing is is maybe the right call, because, again, it it is weird that they've just obviously given the connection. It's weird that they've never like he's never even been in a Sofia Coppola movie. Right. So 
that that yeah. feels a little strange. But um, yeah, I think my for me for me I, I think the Safties yeah. the Safties call it is the call because I think they are of the age where they can kind of appreciate the history of him as a performer sure. and yet yeah. still give him something that both is contemporary but also allows him to color outside the lines and they or color can out find space, a film you know, yeah. yeah they can find a film that kind of puts it back in the lines or, or in the create a world where where that makes sense and i that's that would probably be at the top of my list uh all right well Corey, thank you for taking the time uh and uh yeah i guess in terms of uh wrapping it up dan where can people find you well, you know, DJ Mecca on Twitter, writing stuff, a little bit more uh, stuff recently. So there'll be uh, some reviews and stuff like that coming from me for the film stage. And um, yeah, that's where I am. That's where I always am. And Corey, uh, anything you want to plug? Anything you want to, what, what can people expect from Cinephile Card Game in the, in the future? Anything? Um, yeah, we're working on a new expansion pack, which will hopefully be out by the end of the year, and you should look out for that. And if you don't already have Cinephile a card game uh, or watch our Cinephile game nights, you should definitely do that. Um, so, yeah. Amen. Great. And you can find, uh, just to be clear, you can find Cinephile Game on social at Cinephile Game. So check it out. Uh, it's pretty cool. We devote some time to it with these game nights and uh, yeah. you can check those out as well. You can find those, you can find the replays uh, on YouTube as well through the film stage or through the cinephile website. Uh, so check those out. They're a lot of fun if you haven't watched them. Uh, other than that. Um, so this was the first of our audience choice poll winners that we've, that we've kind of wrapped up now. Uh, we have uh, four more that'll be in the works that'll be coming out over the course of the rest of the year. As of now, uh, all four have been wrapped up. So we will be covering, uh, you know, at some point in the future in this order, we'll be covering uh, Gene Wilder and then Nicole Kidman and uh, Paul Newman. So those will be fun. Uh, and uh, like I said, just keep a lookout Uh for when those are going to be dropping. We'll probably do some other stuff in between. We'll scatter them out between now and the end of the year, but uh, we appreciate everybody who chimed in and let their voices be heard. And I will say, you know, for the, for the uh, choices that did not win in those polls, we have not forgotten either those choices or the choices from last year. We kind of bank those as ones we know that we want to cover. So if there was somebody you voted for who didn't make the cut, uh, we'll get around to it because, uh, you know, we, we want to be covering those ones as well. Uh, that said, you can follow me on Twitter at scruffy looking. You can follow this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFS B side. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, if there's somebody you want us to cover, if there's, if you want to yell at us for, uh, you know, something we said wrong, you can shoot us an email, uh, at uh, b-side b-s-i-d-e at thefilmstage.com and uh, otherwise I'm glad we got to do this because I think we all we all appreciate Mr. Nicholas Coppola um, and I think we all appreciate his range and I think we appreciate what he's able to continue to be doing and I think despite arsenal and rage he'll always be Nicholas Cage 